Hello, and welcome back to the Giddy Carousel of Pop, the podcast that takes an old issue of Britain's brightest pop mag smash hits and has a good nose to its pages with a guest. I'm Simon Galloway, and he's as big as a ranch and as tough as they come, <laughs> allegedly. It's not Big Leggy, it's Gavin Hogg. <laughs> big Hoggy. Big Hoggy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How do, Si? You all right? I'm all right, mate. Yeah, how are you? Oh, yeah, I'm here. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, you can't ask for any more than that. No, that's <laughs> well. I mean, that's kind of the minimum we'd hope for, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm here and I'm paying attention. So that's that's so good. Excellent start to the show. Brilliant. Yes, yeah. So as always, before we set the good old carousel spinning in motion, Gav, what's the latest from the coffee kiosk? Well, heading over to the coffee kiosk, I can see that Richard Drew. Previous guest on the pod and uh, all-round good fella has uh, thrown us a few quid. He said, uh, woke up feeling generous and hoping you may plug my exhibition on the next podcast. Essentially, this is a bribe, isn't it? Well, Richard, it is, yeah, but seeing as you're so lovely and uh, and a very generous chap, we will let you plug your exhibition on the podcast. Side, tell us what we need to know. Uh, yeah, the exhibition that Richard's involved in is called Filling the Void, 35 Years of TV Production Design. And it's at the Worthing Museum and Gallery until the 16th of July. And also, get this, on Saturday the 10th of June, there's a special drop-in event where you can meet the man himself. Uh, so this is the blurb that I got from the website. It said, meet the designer, Richard Drew. Come and talk to Richard at the museum between 11am and 1pm to find out more about his fascinating 35-year TV design career. Don't miss this free opportunity to see additional material not on display in the exhibition and chat to Richard about the art of TV production design. The event will be in the main gallery in the Filling the Void exhibition. And one more time, this is a free drop-in event, so no need to book, just pop along. So it's all there on the website. So, yeah, if you're down that neck of the woods, Worthing, until the 16th of July, you can see the exhibition. And on June the 10th, Mr. Richard Drew will be there himself. Just Google it, filling the void, Richard Drew, and you can find out more about it for yourself. Excellent. And he is a lovely chap. So, he is a lovely uh, chap, yes. And a very interesting fella. So, yeah, go along. If I was down that way, I would be popping in several times a week, I'm sure. <laughs> bit of a journey from Sheffield but yeah thanks again anyway Richard very kind of you and if you want to support us you can do exactly the same it's very simple it can be just a one-off thing or you can buy us as many coffees as you like as often as you like it's totally up to you just go to Co <laughs> Kofi? Co Kofi. Just go <laughs> Kofi. Is that the United Nations? <laughs> Kofi and Anne. yeah, yeah. <laughs> coffee even K-O hyphen fi.com forward slash giddy pop pod that's ko hyphen fi.com forward slash giddy pop pod chuck us a few quid to help keep the carousel spinning or if you want to just leave us a review or rating you can do that instead so down to the important business sigh what is occurring in the land of the carousel well after being stuck in october 1981 for several months the keepers of the carousel, I'm presuming that'll be myself and, and, and Gav, is that, is that right? That, that yeah. is correct, yes. There, so we are the keepers of the carousel. I just wanted to clarify that in case anybody had kind of moved in and claimed squatters' rights or anything like that. Oh, no, no, no. We're, we're the eternal keepers of the carousel. That so. is okay then. So, yeah, we finally watched the whole first season of Bergerac. Uh, really good season it was too. Oh, yeah. And we're ready to continue our journey through the back issues of Pop. Just before locking up for the night, Gav meets some punks at the far edges of the fairground who, with twinkles in their eyes, sell him a pack of space dust. 
He takes it back to the carousel to share with me, very generous as always, whereupon, after a few short minutes, we tumble through a psychedelic chink in the sky, chased by an army of clocks, all made of marmalade, and aggressively singing new B40 songs in our direction. <laughs> <laughs> These pesky punks have slipped something into the space dust. Yeah, never trust a punk. And the universe has imploded and exploded simultaneously. This narcotic confectionery is doing nothing for my hay fever, I tell you, and I'm about to be sick into a nearby gum boot. I've always got one hand. When Gav is seized by a William Blake-esque vision and claims, steady your welly sigh, there's something strange afoot and points through a kaleidoscopic wormhole. For there, down the wrong end of this unfathomable telescope, is a 12-year-old Gav sitting on a school playing field in 1982. He's talking to a fellow pupil, which 53-year-old Gav remembers was Sue Humphreys as her name drifts into his noggin through the ether. The pair are suddenly sucked into a vortex and hurtled towards the long jump area at Lighthall School. As they land with a bump, the young Gavin turns to Sue and says... Sue, welcome to the carousel. Which horse would you like to sit on today? Oh, thank you, Gav. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. Um, uh, well, I, I have to say, I'm not really a carousel person these days, but oh. in, in 1982, I would have been sat on um, probably a John or a Simon, maybe, or a Nick. <laughs> <laughs> All right, would you like to describe what they look like, these horses? Yeah, they probably would have had a nice burgundy mane, um, crazy coloured, probably, and... Uh, no, a nice jaunty looking steed, I think. Okay, so kind of like a new romantic painted wooden horse. A bit really. of a new romantic horse, yeah. I'm sure we can sort one of theirs out for you, not a problem. For the carousel to begin spinning, we just need a truthful answer, whether it's a yay or a nay to this perennial question. Have you ever been sick in a gumboot? No, I haven't. Okay, fair enough. Well, <laughs> upon that, thank you for your clear and concise answer. The carousel can begin to spin. Oh, hold on tight. The carousel has spun us back through that kaleidoscopic wormhole to the smashits of the 19th of August to the 1st of September 1982, which Sue has picked out for us to peruse. And if you want to read along with us, you can do just that, thanks to the Light Punk Never Happened and Smash It's Remembered websites. You'll find links to the scans of this issue in the episode show notes, along with Spotify and YouTube playlists that include pretty much all the songs and artists featured in this issue of The Hits. You'll also find these links on our website, giddypoppod.home.blog, and we'll post them on our Twitter and Facebook feeds as well. Just search for the Giddy Carousel of Pop or at giddypoppod. And on the front cover, uh, we've got a very glamorous-looking uh, John Taylor, in a, it was like Miss what, T-shirt competition, nineteen eighty-two. There, isn't he? I don't know what's on his T-shirt. I, I was trying to ponder that. Uh, it looks a bit Susie Sue. Mm. It's it's definitely kind of Athena-ish, isn't it? You know, it's like a kind of a poster you get from Athena, and he's got his little uh, fairly tight speedos from uh, from the look of it. But it's through the water, so it's a bit hard to see, and I don't want to stare too much. Uh, <laughs> But lovely uh, Californian pool is in there. It says Duran Duran cooling off in California. Also on the cover, we've got The Stranglers and Sting. Hit songs by Haircut 100, Hazy Fantasy, Survivor and many others. 
and we also were promised Simple Minds and Donna Summer in colour. What were we thinking about that front cover, Sue? Well, it was definitely on my bedroom wall. That one made it to prime position, I think, <laughs> amongst lots of other Duran Duran ones. But the reason I chose that issue was Mr. JT Bass God looking so lovely. <laughs> <laughs> were you uh, a big Duran fan at this time? I, I was a, yeah, a very, very big Duran Duran fan. Lasted about two years, probably, nah, probably about two months. But yeah, as big as it came for those wonderful two months in 1982. Brief but intense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and was was this kind of peak, peak Duran fandom around this time? Yes, definitely. Yes, definitely. Yeah. So we, we've already said uh, before, we, you know, we were both at the same school and we'd before kind of hooking up to do this uh, podcast, we'd not seen each other in the flesh or virtually for probably about 35 years. So uh, so normally we ask people where they were and what they were doing. I've got a pretty good idea with you because you're at the same <laughs> secondary school as I was in Solihull, in Duran Duran territory, really, wasn't it? It certainly was, yeah. We used to hang around outside his mum's, uh, John Taylor's mum's house. Oh, did you? Yeah, yeah, very close. Tell us more, tell us more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me, me and my mate who... Gav also knows. Uh, we used to uh, go drive, not drive, we were 12. <laughs> God, we cycled <laughs> on our bikes <laughs> to um, uh, Hollywood, which was not quite as glamorous as it sounds. It was just uh, past Solihull Lodge. <laughs> and yeah. um, we cycled up there and um, sort of, we did quite a lot of sleuthing, which was pretty uh, damn impressive for those pre-internet days and found out his uh, John Taylor's address and uh, we were informed by other Durannies that his mum was quite a nice lady and so we knocked on her door one day and uh, she was indeed a lovely lady gave us some uh, signed photos and off we cycled again oh that's amazing yeah well that's a nice little story isn't it I wasn't thinking yeah, yeah. <laughs> did you ever go back uh, we never went back, no. Right. <laughs> Way too shy. Ah, good on you. That's great. Yeah, it's probably the least shy thing I ever did when I was 12. <laughs> when did you first encounter Smash Hits? Oh, gosh. Um, my very first Smash Hits issue was, I can remember it really well because we were on holiday in Blackpool. <laughs> uh, my dad had taken us away just for a weekend, I think, and uh, it was chucking it down. So he bought me this is totally out of character for my dad he bought me a smash hits from and i looked it up it was october the 15th 1981 amazingly it had duran duran on the cover so i think perhaps that's where the duran duran love all started yeah um but I remember that issue so well. Read it from cover to cover. Remember all the lyrics from the songs that were in there. And um, it had, you'll like this, Gav, it had an Adamant poster in it. Oh, fantastic. I think I know exactly the one you mean, yeah. Yeah, which was also on my wall. <laughs> and that was me hooked on smash hits then. I inhaled them after that every couple of weeks when they came out. How long did your smash hits uh, obsession last for? I think it must have been about three years. Okay. Probably not even that long, although it seems like much longer, mm. doesn't it, in retrospect? Probably two years, actually, uh, because by sort of 84, I was into much cooler bands than Duran Duran. How, how did your taste change 
What did you start uh, listening to more? I, I was very, very into the Smiths and, oh, what else? Echo and the Bunnymen. Ma- mm. Mainly those two, Smiths and Echo and the Bunnymen. And they are the ones that I've um, sort of stuck with as well. I was also a huge David Bowie fan. Um, <laughs> Big thumbs up from Sam. <laughs> yeah. Never knew any other David Bowie fans. Um, I, I felt I was so intensely in love with him. He felt like my soulmate. <laughs> I, think, I think Si can relate to that, can't you, Si? I, I can, totally, 100%, yeah. And what about the uh, music you were listening to? Were, were you buying many seven inches or albums or taping stuff off the radio or a bit of all of that? In 1982, I was uh, massively listening to Radio 1 a lot. I had my little transistor radio and I used to listen to David Jensen when I went to bed under the covers, trying to keep it quiet. I was probably a bit young for John Peel then, but obviously Mm. progressed. So listening to a lot of radio, used to take it into school on a Tuesday because that was when they released the new Top 40. So um, Tuesday lunchtimes, I'd be listening to Mitrani in some English lesson or something (laughs) with with my little tiny uh, earpiece in. And I had, I was so lucky, um, I had an old dance set record player in my room because I I don't know, you probably don't remember me from that time, Gav, but I was pretty quiet, shy. I spent a lot of time in my bedroom. Mm. So I had a record player. Didn't have any records. Um, (laughs) Not of my own, but I had all my dad's old 45s and 33s, actually. So I was brought up on Bill Haley, Elvis, The Beatles, Tommy Steele, all that sort of thing. And then probably by about 1982, I'd started buying those old jukebox singles from mm. the newsagents. From the carousel in the newsagents in the plain white sleeves, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, my first one of those was Crazy Little Thing Called Love by Queen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that was like my, uh, what I was listening to in 1982. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So for me, I mean, 82, I mentioned before, because we've done a few previous issues from uh, from this kind of era, but um, Adam and the Ants were big for me. Wasn't a big Duran fan, although I was aware that they were from uh, from quite close by. But the fact that all the girls loved Duran, I was like, Mwah. girls' music. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this summer, eighty two, uh, as Sue would have done, we'd have just finished our first years at secondary school, so it was summer holidays, and it was around about this kind of time. My nan and granddad moved up from High Wycombe and sort of moved five minutes away around the corner in Sully Hall Lodge. And then that was great because my granddad bought like a half-size snooker table. They had a little extension in the back and had like a little toilet room there, a little cubicle. So the snooker table, it was a bit tight if you had to do like a loo shot. <laughs> so Sometimes you'd have to open the door to the cubicle. <laughs> you don't get that at the crucible, do you? A cubicle in the crucible. You'd have to stand in the toilet to do your shot. Or you'd have to kind of stand with the queue like this because you had like three inches before the wall. But yeah, so I was playing a lot of uh, a lot of snooker around that kind of time. And, uh, and my granddad also had a, a dartboard on the back of the gate in the little alleyway they had. So uh, a lot of that kind of stuff and, and football with mates. But yeah, that was me. Si, what were you up to uh, summer 82? 
Yeah, it was six week holidays. Like you say, snooker was looming large at that time. And obviously, coming from Sheffield, you know, snooker was just like that was the thing to do. Also, had a dartboard. Um, I didn't have a snooker table, but that did have a dartboard. But the snooker table belonged to my friend Gary, who lived around the corner. He's one of those, uh, you know, tiny ones that you probably get from Argos or something that were really flimsy. I had one of them. But yeah, we spent a lot, of, lot of time playing that, and also I spent a lot of time with my um, friend Neil, who lived around the corner. He played cello, and he got like this Woolworths organ that you switch on it, it sounded like it was bringing in air, like. <sighs> sort of thing and it got these like buttons on it that did chords like on an accordion and, and and stuff so um i used to tinker about on that and we actually made an album in the six week holidays <laughs> uh <laughs> release the tape sorry yeah so <laughs> sadly sadly the tape no longer exists oh. i wish it did i think i may have mentioned this before but the album was called a song for you and i did a, a lyric booklet with illustrations for for each of the songs I mean, we didn't sit down and write these songs. I just like wrote some some random words, and then I yeah. just go around to his house with my little Panasonic slimline cassette recorder, and and, and we would just start, you know, just start playing. It's a completely free improv with me singing these <laughs> lyrics over the top. And the only lyric I can remember, if I can't even remember the lyric, I can just remember what the song was about, and it was just about a biscuit trying to cross the road <laughs> and getting crushed in the process. But yeah. You've got to remember, you know, fame was big in 1982. Yeah, they did a lot of songs about biscuits, didn't they? Yeah, well, well they just, you know, their songs would just appear from nowhere, you know? They, mm. they, they just they'd do the show right here. So that's how I thought, you know, that, that, that you did songs. Um, so so that's kind of ha how it happened uh, for, for us. And also, yeah, the monkeys were on, on, the, on the telly um, in, in those six-week holidays. So it was very, very inspirational stuff. But I do have a, a specific memory relating to, to Duran Duran. And it was my birthday about a month after this issue came out. Uh, so that had been my ninth birthday. I got the Avalon LP from my mom and dad. Uh, and also this little plastic guitar from uh, Argos. I mean, you could tune it up and everything, but it wasn't very good. I didn't know how to tune it up or, or hold it or play it or anything. Um, but I also, with, with my birthday money, bought a record player my first steps i used to have a dance set as well in my bedroom but i bought my first stereo record player for 19 pounds 99 from the pound stretcher that had just opened in sheffield and it came in a rather sturdy box uh so after i'd unpacked it all and everything so the, the record player was in my bedroom but the the box it, when you're that age boxes you know they've got endless possibilities and I, I used to use it for sitting on. I used to perch on it. I used to stand it, you know, on its end yeah. and sit on it. It was the perfect height for nine-year-old me. And I used to sit in the backyard at the house in Sheffield with my little red plastic toy. Well, it wasn't a toy guitar. It was, you know, you could actually play it, but I couldn't play it. And I used to pretend that I was in the video for Save a Prayer. <laughs> Because, you, know, you know, John Taylor's sort of like, you know, you see him in, in various locations dotted around, sitting there, you know, on a boat or, 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 you know, on a tree or something, playing an acoustic guitar. So I, so I would sit in my backyard on this box, perching like John Taylor, playing, playing my guitar, singing Save a Prayer. But because I was concentrating on playing guitar, it would, I couldn't concentrate on sitting on the box, and the box used to kind of topple. So it used to be like a bit of a gamble to see how, how many lines of the song I could get out before the box toppled. I had to jump off it, you know, and, and keep the guitar safe. So, yeah, 
Uh, that was me in uh, yeah the, the summer slash early autumn of um, nineteen eighty two. I remember it being a particularly sunny September. I don't remember much about the August other than making the album. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to hear songs for you. Oh, if I could go back in time and uh, rescue that cassette from uh, from the dustbin of obscurity, I would. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. <laughs> oh. <laughs> thanks for sharing that side. That's tickled oh, me. That that's, that's marvellous. <laughs> So, well, we were talking about Sabre Prayer and Duran, so let's let's go back to the magazine. We've uh, turned the front cover and immediately we get a page of Hazy Fantasy lyrics for John Wayne's Big Leggy. I don't know about you two, I mean, I loved this song when I was a kid. I've still got the 7-inch uh, and uh, I had the album that it was from. And although I bought the single at the time, I think I kind of thought as a 12-year-old kid it was maybe uh, a little bit rude. And then now as an adult, you're like, yeah, it is really quite rude in places. It's definitely rude. I mean, I guess as, as, a, as a youngster, you would think it was possibly about, you know, John Wayne, cowboys and Indians and, and that kind of thing, which on the surface, yeah, that is what it's about. But then it's about special relations, shall we say, yeah. <laughs> and, and certain, uh, you know, achieving certain acts. Yes. With uh, the, the obstacle of a gun belt. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's just... Yeah, we'll we'll leave that there. But if if you're still not really sure what we're talking about, if you go to the top of the pop performance on the video playlist, that should clear up any lingering doubts you may have. Yeah, there is a brief demonstration of what they're singing about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. twice. <laughs> Very helpful. <laughs> yeah, how on earth they got away with that? I will yeah. never know. Yeah, yeah. But oh, Kate Garner, I had a bit of a schoolboy crush on uh, on Kate as a young lad. There was something about it. I mean, you know, I'm not sure uh, I'd wanted to prepare a cup of tea for me. Yeah. But there's something about her, I think, that I liked at the time. How do you two feel about this song? You fans? I think this is great. I remember a Smash Hits interview. Oh, it must have been in Smash Hits because I never read anything else. Obs. With um, <laughs> Jeremy out of Hazy Fantasy. And he said to the Smash Hits readership that it was just about John Wayne being tall you know, mm. having long legs. But, yeah, if ever mm. you were a bit uncertain about that, yeah. watch the top of the pops <laughs> and uh, all of your teenage doubts will be uh, knocked out of the water. Yeah, I mean, just that line, you know, in the chorus, he stands so high, it's enough to make any red skin cry. <laughs> Leave it there. I mean, that's yeah. possibly for, for other podcasts to uh, <laughs> digest and, and, and analyse. Uh, we're still we're still innocent here. <laughs> yes, we'll keep it that way. Yeah. Indeed. Let's move on to the next page. We've got the uh, the contents. Uh, the songs that are covered in this issue are obviously Hazy, Save a Prayer, which uh, would have been useful for Sai, so could strum along on his wobbly cardboard box in the backyard. Uh, the Bell Stars clapping song, Nobody's Fool Haircut 100, Soft Cell with What. Can't Take My Eyes Off You, Boys Town Gang, more of which later. <laughs> Eye of the Tiger by Survivor, again, more of which later. Uh, Sting, Spread a Little Happiness, uh, that goes along with his interview. I Will Follow You Too, which I think is uh, a request spot, because that was actually from a year or two earlier. Wavelength and Hurry Home. I Eat Cannibals by Toto Coelho. Bamboo Music, Sylvian and Sakamoto. Pink Floyd making an unusual appearance in Smash It's with When the Tigers Broke Free Yawn. and White Boys and Heroes, Gary Newman. Uh, we've also got, uh, as I said before, features on The Stranglers, Sting and Duran. And then the usual stuff, bits, RSVP, competitions, letters, 
the usual. And then, of course, talking about things that are usual, the band that put the UB into ubiquitous, it's UB Bloody 40 with a half-page advert for So Here I Am, their great new release. Yeah, inescapable. Absolutely. Inescapable, but... It does kind of bring to light that there's a theme running through. Well, not a theme, but just sort of like the Midlands loom large mm. in pop music in 1982 because Dexys were at number one with Come On Eileen when, when this was out. Here's UB40, an advert for them. You've got uh, John Taylor on the front, yeah. Duran Duran and the Mag. The Bell Stars uh, are in there. and Funboy 3 are Coventry, so they're, you know, yeah. that kind of area. West Midlands, West Midlands rule pop yeah. in 1982. We turn the page and straight into our first feature, Black in Business, uh, feature on The Stranglers. Hugh Cornwell and Jean-Jacques Bonnell of The Stranglers refuse to talk about the competition or their private lives. What do you want to talk about, asked Pete Silverton. Motorbikes, karate, waltzers, their new label. So Pete Silverton um, is a former sounds journalist who uh, covered punk back in its early days. I mean, you think that's only kind of six years previously, <laughs> but it kind of makes sense that, that he's doing this. But in, in this article, in this feature, there's lots of business chat, you know, record contracts, management, money. It's not very punk, is it? But anyway, the, the piece begins like this. When they telephoned, both Hugh Cornwell and Jean-Jacques Bonnell reversed the charges. Not because of poverty, the Stranglers are almost certainly more financially secure than they've ever been, but out of a sense of duty, a feeling that if they didn't wind up the journalists just a little, they'd be letting the side down, breaking with their long tradition of being established thorns in the side. So yeah, like I say, there's lots of business chat, which yeah, I think we can probably skim over that, can't we? <laughs> it first starts getting interesting when uh, when he tries to draw Jean-Jacques Bonnell on... Um, what other music he listens to and, and what he thinks about the competition and things. Uh, and uh, Jean-Jacques says, I try to listen to as much new stuff as possible, but I find it uninspired, especially when I see the fashion industry gearing up. We're living in the age of wimp rock. So I'm guessing that he's talking about the likes of Duran Duran and Haircut 100 and, and things like that. But when pressed to comment on particular bands, he refused firmly and gracefully. We've tried never to slag off anyone because we consider ourselves to have more class than that. People have asked us to criticise records, but we've never done it because there's no class whatsoever in slagging people off. Anyway, they've got a right to exist. Yeah, so getting very kind of, you know... Quite even-handed. Yeah, very even-handed. You know, you'd think you'd expect them to be a little more uh, opinionated uh, about things. The piece goes on. The areas which the Stranglers won't talk about are, in fact, quite large. Hugh told me that he'd lived in the West Country for five years now, but declined to give any further details. He didn't even want to reveal whether he lived in a town or village. Jean-Jacques curled away as soon as he spotted the slightest hint of an inquiry about his personal life. Some people will talk about all the sordid details of their private life, but as far as I'm concerned, it cheapens what you're trying to do. So, yeah, the Stranglers, they're not giving much away. It's not very smash hits, is it? No, it's not at all, no. You know, the readers wanted the froth and the personal details, but nice picture. Very monochrome picture. That, they're definitely the men in black, aren't they, in that period? Um, but like you say, yeah, no, no froth there at all. Uh, you think as pop kids learning about the various tribulations with record labels and stuff. It's not not that exciting, is it, really? <laughs> For me, the best bit is learning about uh, Jean-Jacques Bonnell getting some ribs broken in Japan. Tell us more. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> I really enjoyed this bit. They said, uh, 
The only time he came near to talking about his emotional life was recounting the effects of a trip to Japan a couple of years back. He'd gone there to polish up his karate. As a black belt, he decided a trip to the cradle of the sport was an essential. Soon after he arrived, he was pitted against five black belts, one after another, in a bout of full-contact karate, a version of the sport where the vicious blows actually land. The five black belts broke four of Jean-Jacques' ribs. <laughs> Those four broken ribs taught me a lot about humility. Nowadays, I get riled a lot less easily. Maybe that's why they're a lot calmer and not slanging off other bands, because they're just like, oh, I've had ribs broken, I'm, I'm above all that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think the only bit that would really relate to, to pop kids is when uh, Jean-Jacques is talking about um, his uh, interest in sport. He says, he's a great believer in the virtues of sports, decries the fact that most people stop doing any sport once they leave school, which, you know, when you leave school, you don't want to do sport, do you? And is particularly scornful of the fitness of the majority of pop musicians who he described as weak-spined and pretty lazy. That's after you know, talking about wimp rock. Yeah. Nor is he the only active strangler. Hugh, he tells me, runs three or four miles a day, and Jack Black does a lot of exercises. Only Dave Greenfield declines to tone up his muscles. <laughs> <laughs> the lazy strangler. <laughs> it's all a little bit, God help us if there's a war, isn't it? <laughs> you know, with these, these Spandau Ballet types, they're not going to uh, go over the top for us, are they? You know, they've got to be fitter and leaner. Um, they talk a little bit about Strange Little Girl, which is their, their new single, which I, I quite like, actually. I'm, I, I don't mind Stranglers, you know, they had some good singles. Well, they were kind of the uh, acceptable punk records that we could get in, into the house because mm. you know, my, my, my eldest brothers were of an age where they were into punk. They were sort of 16, 17 when all that was happening. and It, it caused a lot of ruckus in the house. My dad was very against it. But, but yeah, we did have Stranglers records in, in, in the house and, and my sister bought the Duchess single. So yeah, the Stranglers were kind of like the, the acceptable punk band that, that you could bring home to mom and dad just about as long as you didn't have them on display yeah and strange little girl is quite friendly for the parents isn't it there's no swearing in it or it's a bit yeah. like golden brown you know it kind of continuing in that more melodic kind of new wavy pop yeah but as, as far as i can remember yeah and i've not researched this fact you know it's just something that's been knocking around my head for 41 years uh, I'm pretty sure it was like one of their really early songs. It was it was like a demo that they just polished up. Okay, kind of like a you know their parting gift to to the record label United Artists or Liberty, as it become by then as, as the moaning about in this piece before they went off to um, uh, Epic Records. As far as I'm aware, <laughs> anybody, please feel free to correct me. <laughs> the thing that gets me about Strange Little Girl, like, I do quite like it. I just feel it's a bit lazy the way they rhyme going with going. All the time, and I, th I think there's yeah. more. There's more options. I was thinking about two in and throwing. They could have. Yeah, yeah. They could have used that. It's just started snowing. Did you finish the mowing? Your vest is showing. You need to do some sewing. You know, there's there's a lot of directions they could have taken it, but just to keep using the word going, I think that shows a lack of ambition. Well, maybe they're just trying to explore the different meaning of the words there. I mean, mm -hmm. where, where are you going? That. You know, where are you going? You know, like where are you actually going today, and where where are you going in life? Oh, in a philosophical... Ah, oh, you but, see, yeah, yeah. this is why you're on this podcast, side. You think on other levels. You're playing 4D chess while I'm playing tiddlywinks. <laughs> wow. But no, it is repetitive. Yeah. <laughs> Were you much of a fan of The Stranglers, Sue, around this time? Not at this time, although I did love um, Strange Little Girl and Golden Brown, but I got more into them when, when I was at uni and we were all sort of pogoing around to uh, No More Heroes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I think 
at the time of this issue, I was probably totally unaware of them. And, you know, having, I would have read the interview, but would probably not have been impressed by what they had to say, to be honest. No, it's, it's like you say, it's a kind of interview that if you didn't know them and you were a pop kid, you'd read that and you'd be like, all right, well, I'll steer clear of them because yeah, yeah, many old gits, who are these? Yeah. <laughs> so we'll, we'll leave the Stranglers in their, in their black and white world. We go past the, uh, the lyric for Clapping Song and Save a Prayer uh, and Haircut 100 and we get to the pictures. Just one page of pictures this week, uh, all in black and white, obviously, because it's 1982. But we've got the aforementioned uh, Dexes. We've got Kevin Rowland. Looks like he's going around the back of a chicken coop. I'm not quite sure what's uh, what's on the other side of that fence. Or is it a building site? I don't know. I don't know. He pretends to be a fox. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's a chain link fence and he's trying to touch the shoulder. Go, ah, yeah, to Marie Fahey, uh, the sister of Siobhan from uh, Banana Armour and later Shakespeare's sister. And uh, Marie was in uh, the video to come on Eileen, and I think she's on the sleeve as well, isn't she? She is. As well. the, the other big event in Sheffield in, in summer of '82 was that an HMV opened, and it was the, the the biggest record shop in Sheffield. And my sister, the, the first record that, that anybody in the house bought from there, my sister bought the seven inch of Come On Eileen. It was the first time any of us had paid a, over a pound for a brand new single. Wow. Inflation. Let's talk about it. <laughs> Cost of living, kids. You don't know the half of it. <laughs> um, yeah, come on, Eileen. Oh, I just, I mean, I love Dexes anyway, but come on, Eileen. That's just a fantastic song. Then we've got the Fun Boy 3, Keeping Up the Midlands uh, in the Mag. As a little still from the video of Summertime. It's taken place in uh, a place called Stocks. Country retreat owned by Victor Lowndes, one-time owner of Playboy. And then we've got Toto Coelho. We've ditched the uh, the black bin bags for a <laughs> slightly saucy photo shoot where they're kind of ever-decreasing uh, amounts of dress that they're wearing. And, uh, you know, I talked before about Kate Garner as a, as a schoolboy lad, and I seem to remember that picture quite clearly from being a schoolboy as well and finding it slightly thrilling in a, in a way I probably didn't understand at the time. Not that there's anything really to see, but, you know. But they were terrifying, Toto Quayla. <laughs> they were, yeah. <laughs> the video to I Eat Cannibals is... Uh, it's the stuff of nightmares. It is. <laughs> it's like David Lynch has directed it. It's very, very confusing. Yeah, I remember that video and also that they appeared on quite a lot of TV shows, you know, like late night chat shows and, and Saturday morning kids shows doing I Eat Cannibal. Um, they, 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 were, they were everywhere. But it talks about the, the members of the band. It says, um, Sheen played in the Ivy Benson band. Lacey appeared in Grange Hill. Lindsay was a member of the late Lamented Bubbles. Need we go on? Well, I think they should have gone on. Yeah. Because one of the members was uh, a lady called Roz. Roz Holness, daughter of Bob Holness. No way. <laughs> I did not know that, Sai. Good pop facts. Ah, is this pre-Blockbusters then? <laughs> yeah, just pre-Blockbusters. But Bob was well-known already. He'd been on Radio 2 for years. So, yeah, it would have been known. I'm sure that would have been news. But, yeah, that, that totally gets missed. They were very much the one-hit bell stars, weren't they? I think one hit was probably enough, wasn't it? No. <laughs> they had a very brief moment in the sun, didn't they? They did indeed. So, uh, yeah, that's it for pictures. Then we've got a full-page advert for Eye of the Tiger by Survivor. Rock hard and heavy yeah. from Survivor. And then we've got Soft Cells What? And then Bits. Tell us about Bits, Si. 
Yeah, edited by Neil Tennant uh, at this point. And there's lots going on, but none of it's particularly exciting, I don't think. <laughs> no. it's, it's, it's that kind of summer lull where there's not very much happening in the pop world. It's the kind of thing where you know, that's how Toto Coelho can manage to creep round the back and, and, and get in there, because summers are always quiet for pop music. They're gearing up for that last quarter. Uh, and as we can see, you know, there's lots of news, you know, new album or new single coming out in September, touring later in the year and, and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, there's a competition to win a Blumange 12-inch picture disc. There's news on 10CC, the Jam Tour dates, Joan Jett, Gillen, Banana Armour and Captain Sensible appearing in advertising campaigns. Orange Juice, Susie and the Banshees, Simple Minds, Depeche Mode, Gary Newman. Um, the Boys Town Gang. Uh, maybe, maybe we'll just uh, alight there for a moment because <laughs> there's just a little a little bit written about them there. It says, uh, The Boys Town Gang, whose epic version of the old Andy Williams number Can't Take My Eyes Off You, and remember the Pet Shop Boys did cover that uh, in, in the mm. early 90s, is making its way up the charts. They took their name from the area of West Hollywood favoured by the gay community. Since breaking through in America last year with cruising the streets, they've moved up the coast to San Francisco, the city that's reckoned to have the highest gay population in the world. Their ambition remains the same, to be as good or even better than the village people. Uh, and you'll find the video for Can't Take My Eyes Off You on the playlist. The lyrics are, are in here as well. Uh, the, the video is well worth a look. Actually, should we should we talk about this now? Yes, let's get into let's, it. Let's talk about let's talk about it now. So the, the the video I think is is well worth a look. Uh, you know, just from a technical point of view, it's, it's a single camera, one take performance. So there's no cuts, there's no edits. You know, the camera moves around a bit, tracks around a bit. It, it, there's a couple of close ups, but then it, it zooms back. Um, so it's a, a carefully choreographed routine, you know, the, the female vocalist and she's flanked by a dancer on either side uh, that really, yeah, comes straight out of the gay community of West Hollywood. Uh, and whether they can actually dance or not, <laughs> that, that's for another discussion. Uh, but yeah, they're all there doing their thing. One of the guys, you know, the guy on the left is quite loose-limbed and he's doing his thing and he looks quite happy about it. He's, you know, as, as the song kicks in. But the guy on the right, I find him quite disturbing. He's, he's very precise uh, with his movements, almost robotic-like. Uh, but while his body's moving and these sort of very stiff, sort of jerky movements, his head doesn't move. <laughs> His, his gaze is fixed on the camera. It's like the rest of his body is, is, is kind of moving about underneath, underneath this fixed head and this fixed stare that are just, just penetrating, you know, right in, into the camera. And I have to say, you know, the, 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 the moustaches that, that were very popular uh, in, in the gay clubs at, at that time, that's how my, my three eldest brothers, they all had tashes like that. <laughs> Um, it, it, was it was just a thing. I don't think it was necessarily, you know, part part of that community. It's just what it's just what young men had in in, in the early eighties. Uh, but yeah, you know, I was so taken with the video that I posted posted it on on Facebook to say, "Oh, I'm you know, watching this for the uh, for the next uh, edition of the Giddy Carousel of Pop." Um, Al Needham from Chart Music uh, said that. We have to mention Cruising the Streets. Um, so, yeah, one of their previous songs, which mentioned here. And he very kindly shared the link uh, so that I could uh, have a listen to it uh, with the uh, the comment. Imagine your mam seeing that lovely song with the li nice lads on top of the pops, going into boots and coming out with an LP with this on it. And I don't know if you're aware, you know, if you're aware of this song, if you've listened to it at all. 
um, it's it's kind of like well, it's, it's very educational. You know, it's, it's essentially it's it's instructions, sung instructions on, on cruising for guys, uh, with some uh, scenarios being acted out in, in it too, with the main singer from uh, the female singer from uh, the Boys Town Gang playing a hooker. Uh, who likes to watch what the boys get up to. It's, uh, yeah, like I say, it's uh, very, very educational. <laughs> yeah, educational and instructional and, you know, good good on your boys, Sam yeah. Gang, for that. <laughs> but, but also Brian McCloskey, uh, he of uh, Like Punk Never Happened, where uh, hey. you'll find the links to all these issues of Smash It's that we look at. He also pointed me in the direction of a, a feature on the band, that appeared in Smash It's just a few weeks later, in September 1982. Uh, Dave Rimmer has been to visit them, and he says, but the head- headline is, possibly the most boring group in the world. The Boys Town Gang talk about art, expression, and being very creative. Dave Rimmer catches up on some kip. Um, so I'll, ju- I'll just read you a little bit. I mean, the, the whole thing is-, is probably worth reading, but I won't read it all out to you. You can, uh, you know... Um, you can seek it out for yourselves. Uh, it begins, It all happened in Hollywood one summer evening. Mike Guess and Denver Smith came over to my house. We were talking about how much we loved music. Disco's always been my favourite. That night we decided to make a record. We figured we could be as good or even better than the village people. At the time I lived in West Hollywood, or as the locals like to call it, Boys Town. That night we became the Boys Town Gang. Uh, so that's a, a quote, and Dave goes on to write, Now this isn't one of the band talking. It's producer Bill Motley on the Boys Town press release. Forgive me for quoting it at length, but frankly, it's a lot more interesting than anything the band had to say. <laughs> As we sit sipping coffee in a plush central London hotel, the three singers you might have seen on Top of the Pops trot out buckets of bilge. Try this quote from lead singer Jackson. Our aim is to share love to bring all the people out of their depression and make them forget about it all. If we can do that, it's wonderful enough, even for me. Perhaps even more cringeworthy is the following gem from Tony Morley. It calls him Motley at one point and then Morley at the next thing. Um, <laughs> one of the two boys spoken in a sickeningly sincere drawl. I had an art background in graphics, photography, painting, the kind of creative realm. To support myself, I've also been a hairdresser which is another expression of my art. <laughs> the Boys Town Gang are, in fact, without doubt, the most boring group it's ever been my privilege to interview. And so it goes on. So thank you, Brian, for pointing me in the direction of that. <laughs> what were your takeaways from the video, Sue? Oh, that video, yeah. As Sai says... Um, that intense thigh rubbing with the uh, fixed gaze <laughs> was so... It's very Vic and Bob on shooting stars, isn't it? <laughs> it made me feel uncomfortable. <laughs> um, mm. But I liked it once they got moving out of that thigh rubbing and chest writhing sort of position. I, I can imagine doing that dance <laughs> down at Snobs in uh, Birmingham. <laughs> I think for me, it's the big uh, fixed grin that the guy on the right has as well. You know, he sort of stares at the camera, but with a big... Eventually, eventually that grin appears. At first, it's quite intense. Mm. But then once once he loses into it, because there's there's a bit where there's a bar, like four beats, 
where they don't do anything, they're just getting themselves into the position for the next the next bit. It's the chorus that's coming up. Yeah. Where they do like a you know a hand fist shake thing from side to side, and that's that's, that's when right. his smile appears. You can tell I've, I've watched this about six times now. I'm just absolutely <laughs> fascinated with it. I've, I've just found it yeah, just just absolutely gripping. Um, yeah, and that that's when his smile. So that's when he becomes a little more human, but no less intense. Mm. Because it's 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 kind of overcompensating with that grid. Yeah, I think as single takes go, it's like a very close second to the first ten minutes of Orson Welles' A Touch of Evil. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's right up there, I think. And clearly, an influence on on you know Janet Jackson a few years later when she did the video for When I Think of You. You yeah. know, that's, that's a single cha- <laughs> single shot, single take thing. It's a fun. It's a, an amazing work of art, and uh, yeah, just incredible movements. I like the fact you can sort of see them mentally counting. Yeah. You can, yeah. You know, those bars when they're kind of getting ready for it. And then, yeah, the the very sort of deliberate, like you say, the one's a bit more loose-limbed and, and slightly more natural. Only in comparison to yeah. his mate. I mean, he's not, he's not a natural dancer, but it, there's a bit more ability there. And the other one is just very sort of robotic and really concentrating. But what I do love about it is the fact that they, they really commit. They do. And you you can't accuse them of being a bit half cocked about it. <laughs> Pardon the expression. You know they really <laughs> they really go for it. Um, fair play to the lads. Yeah. Fair play to them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Moving on from boys' song, shall we? Is, is there anything else? Anything yeah. else in bits there that, that you would like to uh, to discuss in all the little tidbits there that are presented before you? I I noticed. Um... Well, I thought it was interesting that Kate Bush had roped in Rolf Harris to play Didgeridoo on her album. Mm. Um, yeah. In hindsight. <laughs> and also, which I would have probably been impressed with at the time, uh, animal impersonator Percy Edwards to make frantic sheep noises during an instrumental <laughs> break. Because... My dad had an album by Percy Edwards, so that would probably have received a bit of uh, playing on my old dancette in my bedroom. <laughs> I love that expression, and, and I, when I when I read that about him making frantic sheep noises, I was kind of picturing what that would have looked like in the studio. Yeah. <laughs> Percy Edwards really gearing himself up to kind of uh, <laughs> bleat away, you know, like what what was going on. To you know, actors talk about what's what's my motivation for this scene, and I wonder what what Percy was thinking about when he was trying to make these frantic sheep noises in the studio. Probably best not think of that. <laughs> what I thought was interesting that um, it mentions the Future Armour Festival at Deeside Leisure oh, Centre. Oh, yeah. Performances by Jurity Column, Thomas Dolby, uh, the three courgettes. I don't know them. I think I had to look them up. Uh, I'm partial to a courgette. Um, a Flock of Seagulls, uh, Dalek Eye. Isn't it Dalek Eye Love You? But um, I-, I thought it was. Yeah, there were two... They kind of changed the name a little bit, but it's the same band, yeah. Okay, and then, I'm guessing this is probably one of the first mentions uh, for Dead or Alive in the mag, because um, they're uh, playing on the 12th of September at the Future Art Festival. So, yeah, a good kind of 18 months or so before, in fact, no, longer, two two years mm. Two and a half years, three years, a, a length of time. <laughs> Any advance on yeah. three years? <laughs> Sold. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, a good, yeah, a good couple of years, shall we say, give or take a, a few months or so either side uh, before we, we come to uh, wider recognition. But also, yeah, Southern Death Cult, um, The Room and The Farmers Boys. And uh, two days, £10. What a bargain. Yeah. I, I looked up how much it was worth and... 
I think in today's money, that'd be about 45 quid. So still a bargain. Still an absolute bargain for a weekend of all those great bands, yeah. Because yeah. I know see Duran Duran around this time would have cost you about eight pounds. Eight quid, yeah, I can confirm. There we are. Uh, so it's just, I think it's about 30 pounds in today's money. They were playing at Leeds uh, a few weeks ago. I looked at tickets. It was like 120 pounds for the cheapest one. It's like, yeah, that's that's not the kind of rate of inflation that I'm into. No. <laughs> <laughs> Talking of gigs and prices, the Jam were playing for a fiver. Bargain. On this on this tour, like all tickets are fiver, which uh, is about 22 quid today. Which, I mean, you can barely see like a local band down the pub for 22 quid, can you? So that's that's great value. But yeah, Future Armor sounds like that would have been an amazing lineup. You'd love to go back in time and get to that for sure. In the uh, there's the independent charts. I just wanted to quickly mention because the number one album we're recording this only uh, just over a week after the coronation of uh, from Prince Charles to King Charles. Number one LP is uh, Junkyard by Birthday Party. I'll see uh, Nick Cave's band before uh, forming Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. And to think at that point uh, that the uh, the number one artist in the in the album charts would several decades later be uh, invited to the coronation of King Charles. You wouldn't have put money on that, would you? You'd be like, I'm losing my money there. <laughs> Even if you got a thousand to one, you'd be like, no, I keep my pound. Thank you very yeah, much. Could, could yeah, because you know, we're only a year after the marriage of Charles and Diana. Could you have imagined Nick Cave at that wedding? That was going to happen. <laughs> exactly. Just impossible, isn't it? Yeah. It makes, makes you wonder <laughs> if uh, Peter and the Test Tube Babies were invited to the coronation. <laughs> Good point, yeah. <laughs> or the Anti-Nowhere League. <laughs> yeah. Who else in the Indie Charts was invited to the to the coronation of King Charles? <laughs> Bauhaus, they could have gone, yeah. I think. Uh, Anti-Pasty. Yeah. P- pig Bag, I'd have loved to have seen them in, in, the, in the coronation concert alongside Boys Town Gang. <laughs> I think it, uh, where was the correlation? Was it St. Paul's? I don't know, Westminster Abbey? I don't know. Oh, I've got no idea. Didn't watch it. <laughs> Me neither. But they, they could have had a little area roped off for, you know, the independent charts of 1982. Yeah. Obviously, could have had Nick at the front. But then, you know, like you say, Anti-Newwear League and uh, Pig Bag and other members, you know, on the pews going back from there, little roped off area. Yeah. That would have been nice. I think that's where uh, we'll leave bits for this issue of Smash Hits. We go past uh, an advert for the Sting film Brimstone and Treacle. On that Sting advert, uh, it does say, for what we're about to receive, may God help us. And for me, that kind of is very much uh, very prescient for Sting's solo career, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) It's happening. It's coming. Look out. Yeah. And then, oh, we go past a star teaser, uh, a word search with Brian Ferry and Roxy Music songs, which I took the liberty. No, it hasn't been completed in this. I took the liberty of uh, printing it out and I've, I've made a start on it. I've not found all the songs yet. I've found uh, Sign of the Times, Virginia Plain, Tokyo Joe, Pajama Armor, Love is the Drug, and uh, To Turn You On. Oh, and All I Want Is You. There's a lot more to find. So I'm going to carry on working on that one. <laughs> uh, below that, an advert for um, Simple Minds Glittering Prize. And then, oh, we get to the lyrics for um, Boys Town Gang, as previously discussed with a lovely photo of uh, the gentleman and lady there. And next to that, the lyrics for Survivor and Eye of the Tiger. Well, we were talking about Boys Town Gang before and great videos, and uh, Eye of the Tiger is another beauty. <laughs> it really is. And it was uh, when we first started talking about doing this issue, and, and Sue mentioned that uh, 
your son had got quite obsessed by this, hasn't he? Oh, definitely. Yeah, he's um, been reenacting the video. Quite an easy one to reenact. <laughs> it's mainly walking around, isn't it? And um, yeah, doing swift head turns to the beat. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, so the, the lead singer of Survivor, he's, he's he kind of starts off walking down the street. Now he's got like a, a leather jacket on and a beret. In 1982 in in England, a beret meant one of two things. It was either you were a Frenchman in a stripy top on a bike with onions around your neck, or you were Frank Spencer. So <laughs> so for us, we would probably go down the Frank Spencer route. So straight away, you've got a very distinct whiff of Ooh Betty about the video. <laughs> <laughs> and they're walking down the street. And what I love is it's that thing of like the gang is assembling and uh, they kind of come in at different times. And I can't take my eye off, um, I think you pronounce his name, Jim Peterick, who's the guy with longer hair and big glasses. They're not the most photogenic bunch, but he's the least photogenic of the lot for sure. And he kind of comes in and he's really, again, a bit like Boys Town Gang and they're kind of concentrating on sticking with the beat. And he comes and you can feel like just before he joins uh, the lead singer and like he's kind of walking a pace behind him and he's really trying to like walk on the beat and like be in step with the singer. And it's just so funny. He's got the biggest, like, Dennis Taylor glasses. You know, nice link back to the snooker. Maybe he was a big snooker fan. I don't know. But we, And I was watching it with, <laughs> with Lynn, my wife, the other day, and she went, uh, there's a lot of hamster pouches. And I was like, I didn't know what that meant. Do you two no. aware of hamster pouches? <laughs> Explain. Well, <laughs> once I point it out, you'll uh, you'll never look at the video the same way. Did you not notice that, Si? <laughs> Well, I don't know what I don't know what hamster pouches are. So let's, exactly, it, it may be something that I've noticed but didn't have a name for. Go on. I don't want to go into like a lot of detail because obviously it's a family friendly podcast. But <laughs> basically, you're looking at the uh, the front of the tight jeans. Okay. And, uh, yeah. yeah, they're definitely smuggling. I'd say a whole pet shop's worth for hamsters between them. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they're the original pet shop boys. I think <laughs> there's a lot going on down the front of the jeans. Yeah, no, I was I was looking a bit further up, and particularly at the keyboard player who who means it, man. All the way through yeah but when he joins the gang in, in that that uh, opening sequence where, where they're all kind of lurking in, in doorways and round corners and things and then just sort of like getting the sign and join, joining the walk um yeah I, I just noticed that they clearly didn't have a stylist working for them and, and they've chosen their own clothes because his t-shirt is just well let's just say i mean it, i'm i'm a fine one to talk but and i'm not i'm not trying to body shame the guy but his t-shirt is just revealing you know well, things jiggling around, uh, <laughs> moobs, shall we say, and, and things, uh, and that maybe he, he should have considered his wardrobe choices uh, a little more carefully. I certainly would have, being a man of a certain physique. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> he's the guy that wrote the song, and there's a bit when they kind of go into the rehearsal room where there's a car for some reason, like an old car in a junkyard rehearsal room space. It's a bit odd. I think it's, I think it's meant to be like a rag, rags to riches sort of thing because right. that scene it's sort of like yeah we're, we're a hard working band and you know we're coming from the streets and uh. you know and, and we've got a you know, rehearse in, in a mechanics garage i mean maybe it's the true story of survivor i don't know and then the, there's a transition where all of a sudden they've got billowing gold fabric in, in the background and i think that's that's when they've made it you know and, and that's when they're starting to smile at each other but then there's like 
kind of water flying around at some point. Yeah, I'm not sure what's going on with the water. I don't think it's gold fabric. That's I think that's a glittering prize video. I think it's black bin liners. I think they've been into Toto Coelho's dressing room and uh, got the, got some spare costumes from Toto Coelho, yeah. The stuff billowing around in the background anyway that, that, yeah. I think, that I think marks our arrival at Stardom. Definitely. <laughs> what did you like about this video, Sue? My little son, actually, he's only eight, and um, but he know he knows how the music industry works. And he he said to me the other day, he said, "You'd have thought that you know, with hindsight, is a huge hit that is still played on the radio today. You'd have thought they'd have remade the video by now into something that looks a bit more <laughs> professional. But oh, it, it's a great. It's been very entertaining. We've watched it so many times. Uh, we're probably going to make our own version of that video. Oh, fantastic! Yeah. Please share it. <laughs> One last thing about that video that always makes me laugh as well. You've got a bit of them going down the street and then when they're about to go into that first sort of rehearsal space, suddenly they're walking single file and they're walking really, really quickly, heads down, and it's really odd. And it's like the naughty boys being sent to the headmaster's office, the way they're walking. It's like they've lost all the swagger they had from the streets and now they're like, <sighs> it's, it's very odd, like a uh, gear change in the video. It's brilliant. I love it. I, I don't want them to make a new version. I, I just, well, although actually that would be quite entertaining if they made it now because I've seen a picture of what Jim Peterick looks like now. and uh, He's got better with age, I thought. I think so, yeah. He does look better. He's got, like, purple hair and uh, he's definitely a character, isn't he? Yeah. I am coveting his boots. Let's put it that way. Yeah, purple leather cowboy boots, right? Yeah. Don't get many of them to the pound, do you? I like the fact that, in, as well in the video in the rehearsal room, he as the writer of the song, it's like he forgets that he's not the lead singer and he starts singing along and then he bites his top lip as if to go, oh, I shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> That's, that really makes me laugh. <laughs> it's like the lead singer shoots him a look off camera and he, and he's, and he suddenly stops singing along. But yeah, yeah, put him in his place. It's fantastic. God bless you, Survivor. So we go past them and... We get to uh, one of the other main interviews in the magazine. We've had Stranglers, uh, and now we get to Sting. And uh, Dave Rimmer has gone to meet Sting. Well, first of all, he goes to see him uh, play half to a half-empty stadium in Gateshead with the police, being supported by Lords of the New Church, Gang of Four, The Beat, and U2. And a few days later, he goes to visit him in London in his house. And a bit like the Stranglers, really, uh, Sting is uh, just kind of unhappy with the business and the press uh, and the attention he's been getting. He's very discombobulated with Virgin Records over a dispute connected to a contract he signed before he was with the police. He was in a, a jazz funk band in Newcastle called The Last Exit and they signed some kind of publishing detail. And that's why uh, sort of a version of the song gets used uh, in a body miss commercial, which he's grumbling about. It's not actually Sting singing, but it's kind of a stinger-like. Uh, I think it's like one of the top of the pops singers, you know, the top of the pop. It does sound, it does sound very <laughs> much like that, yeah, because they, they'll have got the, um, I have to deal with this at work, they'll have got the rights to use a song uh, from a, a publishing point of view, but they won't have got the rights to use the actual recording of the song, so they've had to re-record it. Uh, and yeah, and it's, it, Sting is misquoted in this, because the, the, this, this, the Gateshead concert, is filmed by Tyne T's television as shown as part of a tube special uh, at the beginning of 1983 and found it on YouTube. I've added it to the um, added it to the playlist. It says, uh, I'll tell you something. I hate body mist. This is from the article. I think it stinks. I think Virgin Records stink. But what he, what he actually says is, I think Virgin Publishing stinks. 
because mm. it's, it's the, the publisher and not, not the record company side because they were signed to A&M Records. I think the whole legal process stinks and, and there's some cheers go up in, in the audience. So, you know, they're, they're clearly on Sting's side. But yeah, that, that body mist commercial, you know, as, as well. It's got Tommy Vance on there doing his, doing his nice voice, doing his best Tommy Vance voice. Yeah. <laughs> Which is always a pleasure and a treat to hear Tommy Vance on something. In fact, I found... Radio One Top Forty, uh, a recording of that on Mixcloud, which I'll put that I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But it's, it's Tommy Vance hosting that, and he's trying to give facts on all all the songs, all the records that he's playing as he counts down the chart. The first record he plays is by Sheena Easton, uh, and he says something like, "I'm going to you know sort of slightly misquote him here because I didn't write it down." But he says something about there's Sheena Easton. She's in the papers today, not for her music, but for the fact that she doesn't like to wear underwear. <laughs> Words to that effect, yeah, and, and the, yeah, the, 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 it's, it's like a Rock Allen partridge, uh, and there's a few few little quips like that that just had me proper laughing out loud when I was listening to Fantastic. it in my kitchen. <laughs> but anyway, I digress. Back to Sting. So yeah, although Sting's a bit grumpy uh, in the article, uh, Dave says this last year for the Police has been a good one. Ghost and the Machine was their biggest American album. Their last tour was their most successful yet. Since then, it's been a matter of taking stock rather than leaping back on the treadmill. They've all been busying themselves with solo projects. Andy Summers has just made an album with guitarist Robert Fripp. Stuart Copeland's working on a film score for Francis Ford Coppola, director of The Godfather and Apocalypse Now. And Sting has been acting in and doing the music for the film Brimstone and Treacle, from which his current single, Spread a Little Happiness, is taken. Um, And then, yeah, it goes on to talk quite a lot about his appearance in Brimstone and Treacle, and he's talking about kind of the music world and how uh, it's, I think Sting's quite prescient here. He says music has ceased to belong to the young. It's everybody's now. The difference between the generations has gone. If society is alienated as a whole, you can't be alienated within it. Everybody is. The rock rebel is defunct. He's meaningless. It doesn't surprise me one bit. And then he goes on to talk a, a bit more about money and, and he wants to go into business himself, saying he'd like to play with someone else's money first, which is a very good move. <laughs> Make a few mistakes and then take a plunge on my own. I was looking, according to the Sunday Times Rich List for 2022, do you know what Sting's personal wealth is? Well, do you, ha, Sue, hazard a guess, how many millions do you think oh, he's worth? How, well, what he's worth and what he's worth, <laughs> probably two different things, <laughs> but um, oh, 400 million. Oh, that's that's very accurate, actually. Ooh. Yeah, three hundred and twenty million. Mm. Yeah, which is an insane levels of wealth, yeah. isn't it? So, uh, yeah, he's done he's done all right on that. Um, what are your your takeaways from this, Sue? What are your thoughts on Sting and the Police? Well, as you know, I wrote copious notes <laughs> on on, <laughs> on this issue of Smash Hits, and for Sting, I've got one line: um, as you'd expect him to be, hard done by and grumpy. So uh, yeah, yeah, that's my takeaway. <laughs> but he was only a very young man at the top of his game then. So shame he couldn't have enjoyed it more. Yeah, absolutely. We, we often get this in smash hits where you get people that are still, you know, fairly young and have got a lot ahead of them. Uh, and you know, the police and Sting both had, you know, many more years of, of success. But they seem to burn out and get cynical very quickly you know i mean i know he'd, he'd been involved in the music biz on and off for for a few years by this point but you'd thought he'd been just enjoying it and you know having a bit of fun i know it must have been a pain you know all the kind of the legal stuff and the press but that's part of the course isn't it you know it's like if you want to be a pop star you're gonna have to put up with that stuff it's kind of what you sign up for really isn't it 
Um, and I think the the difference in attitude will you know will come to Duran Duran uh, quite soon. But their their keenness and their ambition and their sort of fresh facedness compared to the Stranglers and Sting is really noticeable, isn't it? It's totally different generation, even though there's just a couple mm. of years between them. So yeah, yeah. I don't know how much older Sting was than uh, Duran, but like you say, it's probably like, I don't know, maybe five, six years, mm. that kind of thing. We're not we're not talking a, a huge age gap, but. But they are like completely different generations. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, I suppose Sting is from uh, the punk generation, isn't it? So, you know, if you can't have a moan when you're a punk, when can you? <laughs> <laughs> it also strikes me with Sting and uh, the Stranglers, all, all that business chat. And, and I just keep thinking of League of Gentlemen, creme brulee. It's a shit business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very much so. <laughs> Definitely. What did you think of the uh, the video for Spread a Little Happiness? So did you did you get a chance to watch it? I did get it. Well, you know, as I say, I'm not a fan. Watched mm. the first thirty seconds of it, um, and uh, I have no opinion other than it's not my <laughs> he's, he's not my cup of tea. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you got to say I think he's a better dancer than the Boys Town Gang lads. <laughs> I would say. Again, a low bar, perhaps, but you know, Sting overcomes it with uh, with a little bit of flourish. He does some nice little moves, and I, I'm not a fan of uh, of that song. I, I didn't really like it at the time, and uh, yeah, time hasn't made it any more appealing to me. But as it goes, it's kind of okay. I was getting strong school assembly vibes from the song. I, I, I don't know why. Uh, I think yeah. it must have been played. Uh, you know, when they, when they used to put a record on and she went into assembly. Uh, it'd usually be mm. Jesus Christ Superstar or something like that. But yeah, I, I think one day uh, the, the teacher, head teacher, must have thought, oh, I'll be down with the kids and, and play this. Whereas playing Sting doing a song from 50 years previously. Um, but I really enjoyed the video. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know why. I just found it really charming. Um, mm. I've never seen the film, so I can't. I don't know how it relates to the, to the film in, in any way. But I like how um, you know because it, it's a cast of older ladies that, that are in the video with him. Uh, again, another rags to riches things. So it looks like some sort of soup kitchen, and then you know, and then they're all transformed and all doing the dance routine. And it was really nice actually to see. Um, you know the, the, these older ladies doing doing this dance routine, but there was one point just before they transform from from like you know the, the dowdy clothes to the the more glamorous clothes, where it was a bit like a precursor to the uh, dancing zombie scene in Thriller, because they're all behind him, all like sliding up and doing doing the thing, and I'm like, whoa, you know, I'm getting, getting Thriller vibes from this. You know, maybe Michael Jackson saw that. And thought, I want to do that Sting video, but I want it to be zombies. I, 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 <laughs> I don't know, but yeah, I, I, I found it quite charming. Unlike this interview, which, you know, isn't really very it's, charming, it's, is it? It's charmless, but what I found interesting was that, um, you know, they're the, the talking about, you know, the, the doing this show and like and, and Sting says it, but Dave Rimmer says it as well, as, oh, they've not even got a new album to promote. Well, excuse me, but the Ghost of the Machine album only came out in October the previous year. It's not even a, a, not mm. even a full year has elapsed. But that's what the, the the music business was was like then, you know, an album a year, and you'd do a tour to support that, and because this was just ahead of of that album tour cycle that would take about three years, you know, mm. if somebody releases an album, you know, say in in twenty twenty three, they do the tour for twenty twenty four and twenty twenty five, and then a new album comes out in twenty twenty six, sort of thing. You know, that's that's the kind of cycle that came in as the eighties progressed. 
So I did find that unusual in that, but oh, I've not even got a new album to promote, even though the other one's not even a year old yet. And, and it was quite a year for pop stars being thespians as well, wasn't it? Because, um, you know, you've got um, Sting and a Dennis Potter film, and David Bowie did Bertolt Brecht's Baal um, earlier on in the year as well. So, yeah, yeah, there's a lot, lot of that going on. It, it's, in parts, it's quite a lively piece. And I think we've encountered Sting before in Smash Hits. And he's been quite dull. Whereas this one, I think, you know, it, it, there's a bit of fire in his belly in this one. Mm. There's a bit of ambition there still. He's he's not, you know, he's not entirely comfortable with where he is. So, you know, there's still a little bit of friction there. So I think it actually makes for quite a lively piece in contrast to when we've encountered him later on in the 80s. Yeah. And, and I had Duran Duran not being the cover stars. I think this would have probably been the main feature. I thought it was interesting. He was talking about... Uh old songs being covered because i guess not long before this happy talk would have come out by captain sensible cherry pink and apple blossom white by uh modern romance yeah yeah that's right that's in this issue uh and uh, in the article it says a uh, spread a little happiness uh, an old 30s song arrives amid a wave of cover versions swamping the charts sting finds his fascination with old material understandable he says lots of people who are grandparents now were buying rock and roll everything's been done it makes perfect sense to me that they're bringing out My Boy Lollipop. And, you know, I, I guess that's something that we'd see more and more as the 80s went on, wasn't it? That kind of looking back and finding old songs to cover and particularly with adverts. And But, uh, yeah, kind of quite interesting that Sting was kind of one of the first people to do that in that kind of in the 80s way, for sure. He talks uh, at the end. It's, it's quite nice. He, uh, he talks about missing the old days a bit. Dave Reminis says, ever feel like packing it in and just playing the pubs again? He's silent for a moment. I miss that act- aspect of it all, getting up on Sunday morning, packing the car with gear, setting it up and playing to a few people with pints in their hands. I miss that. Not that I'd exchange it for now. <laughs> so, you know, as much as he's kind of complaining about, uh, you know, press intrusion and legal um, things with Virgin Publishing and that kind of thing, I think he's quite happy with his life, really, isn't he? Yeah, well, maybe the the trip to Gateshead has been a bit of a reminder for him, you know, for, for his roots, you know, almost a hometown show. You know, I wouldn't would never dare say that uh, Sting, you know, and, and Newcastle and, and Gateshead, you know, that that would be a hometown show. I know that the river divides them, like Manchester and Salford, um, because Sting's from Walls End, just over the river. Newcastle lad, uh, it was a big show. Mm. Uh, and Dave, at the beginning of the piece, you know, he paints a, a less than pretty uh, picture of Gateshead. And I think it's it's almost like a, a, a almost a political uh, vibe that you get going on. Gateshead, ravaged last decade by town planners and more recently by massive unemployment, is a kind of place that's usually described as godforsaken. On this grey, bleak Saturday, it seems even worse than usual. Shipyards stand idle over the river, and houses huddle on the surrounding hills as people file into Gateshead's only claim to fame, the Athletic Stadium. So yeah, it's uh, you know d- just just in those few words, he's really pi- you know painting a picture of, of Thatcher's Britain, and it, it does kind of link back to the end of the article where he's asking Sting to to think back. You know, would you do you want to go back to that? <laughs> and Sting's like, you know, no, no, I miss it. No. <laughs> Four hundred million awaits. <laughs> Exactly. We hurtle from Sting straight into RSVP. Looking for pen friends? Send a postcard with pre with brief with brief personal details to RSVP. Smash it's 
Carnaby Street, London, and we'll do our best to help you. Always a, a good one to look at RSVP to kind of take the temperature, take the pulse of where the pop kids are at uh, any given time uh, in the uh, history of smash hits. Uh, not many that I'd write to, but plenty that caught my attention. Sue, any, any there that you would have uh, picked out um, that either caught your attention or that you would have written to? Who would have been your ideal? Uh, absolutely none that I'd have written to. <laughs> However, <laughs> I mean, I I do have form for writing to people Oof. from Smash Hits. Tell us more. But well, I don't think I ever had a reply, or not that I remember. Oh. Um, but I, I had to um, highlight one that lived just down the road from me and Gav, actually. Um, he's called Alan Watkins. Hunky, apparently. So, um, <laughs> and he's into string vests, huggers, cords, and tight fit. So, um, he doesn't sound like my type, to be honest. I like the grungy guitar boys, but um, maybe uh, a Boys Town Gang fan might have uh, found him maybe. more attractive. <laughs> yeah, what are Huggers Chords? They're Huggers Chords in, in quote marks. I don't know what they are. But I Googled it and it was taking me to some very strange places on the internet. Oh, okay. <laughs> in fact, several things in this issue did. Hazy Fantasy, <laughs> Boys Town Gang, Huggers Chords. Uh, I think it's just like corduroy uh, trousers that would sit on, on, the, on the hips rather than lower down, rather than higher up, okay. rather than high-waisted chords, I think. That's my innocent take on it anyway. Less room for hamsters. Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but he wasn't a friend of yours then, Gavs. <laughs> no, I'm unaware of Alan Watkins from uh, from Sully Hole. But yeah, I I did have a quick look on Google Maps to see how far away and it was yeah, it was only a few miles away, but I don't don't remember him. Not in our circle. Definitely not. I I like the uh, the letter above that. So that uh, Alan's is the final letter and the penultimate letter is two girls from Sweden. Uh two girls aged 17, we're looking for males to write to. We're both interested in travelling, but Camilla likes Olivia Newton-John, Adam, so I'd have been all right there. Shaky and Elvis and Marie likes Adam, Japan, Gary Newman and Kraftwerk. Uh, I think Marie sounds a bit more interesting in the musical taste, doesn't she? Um, but yeah, could have had pen pals in Sweden. Obviously, they were a bit older than me. I, I'd have been um, 12 at the time, so they probably wouldn't really wanted to write to some spotty 12-year-old from Sully Old. But, you know, <laughs> might have been worth a go, eh? Yeah. <laughs> Anyone else there, Sue, that you uh, you like the look of? No, I was just trying to find the person actually who said that um, they'd put up with uh, any sort of music except punk and Dean Martin. Oh, that's the first? Yeah, strange um, combination to not like. But, you know, you'd think that if you liked punk, you wouldn't like Dean Martin or vice versa. Well, but... Maybe it's somebody who's, you know, they've got older siblings who like punk and the parents like Dean Martin. And that's the music. Possibly, that, I'm just I'm just trying to picture the home life there. Of yeah, uh, I think you're who's right. that? Shaz in uh, Great Yarmouth in Norfolk. Yeah, she's caught between two worlds, and she doesn't like them. She wants to run free with the pop kids. <laughs> well, I think in my house there's room for both punk and Steve Martin. <laughs> Any letters you like there, Si? Well, you see, I, I, I've marked up this page, and, and it's turned into you know, it looks like uh, something pinned on the wall at a crime, you know, in, in, a, in a police office or something. <laughs> uh, I've got you know, uh, letters highlighted and then lines drawn to them. You know, I'm kind of like matchmaking, but also you know, finding the, the letters that kind of conflict with each other. I mean, the, the first one that caught my attention was uh, calling all male heavy metal maniacs. 
one 14 year old Grebo, and that's uh, yeah. That, that, Grebo, I wouldn't necessarily associate with with heavy metal. That's you know, that's a different scene, but that's later in the eighties. Fourteen uh, year old Grebo into Scorpions, Michael Schenker, Joan Jett, Journey, and many more. So that's kind of my my Tommy <laughs> Vance voice there. Um, only insane males, fourteen to seventeen, please, and that's Donna in um, Nottingham. Um, let's see. Oh, I've got th- three. Uh, lines coming off three 16 year old girls paula elaine and michelle well three good looking boys 16 or over to write to we are into japan depeche mode haircut 100 and other synthesizer groups no punks or heavy metal fans these people aren't going to get on i'm a 14 year old skinhead girl and i would like to hear from skinhead boys i like all scar music especially madness uh and she, she's not going to get on either with um girl aged 14 seeks pen friend same age or, or or over preferably male i'm really into punk and oi music my favorite groups are vice squad and killing joke and my hobbies are <laughs> motorbikes and going to uh concerts that's uh helen in uh Fairham in hampshire um but then you know, there's two here that definitely I'm, I'm hoping that they found each other through the pages of RSVP. I'm coming on 16, would love to hear from anyone 15 plus from anywhere in the world. My favorite groups are the Jam, Beatles, Who, Kinks, etc. And that's Janice, who's in Greenock in Scotland. And uh, I've linked uh, her to Matthew in uh, St. Austell in Cornwall. Out and out 60s fans, 17 into the Beatles, the Who, Kinks and the Searchers. That's the only misstep there, the Searchers. Not as Mm. cool as the other bands. Don't mind the Searchers, but you you can tell it's a boy writing this uh, because he's trying to be pure about it. Uh, Would love to hear from girls 15 plus with similar tastes. Come (laughs) on, you mod X. Feel like we could play the uh, the theme tune, you know the uh, Simon Bates. Yeah, our tune. Yeah, our tune. That's what I was playing. Yeah, yeah. We we'll play that underneath, and we could that could be a feature in future. We could match up RSVP people. Yeah, I mean one because there was the three girls who, who didn't want anybody into punks or heavy metal, and then there's there's thirteen year old Tony in Withenshaw, who wants pen panels aged twelve to sixteen. Well, they're sixteen year old girls into most music except punk. So you know. The, I think they've got you know something in, something that unites them there, <laughs> something you know that they can get along all right. And you know the three girls are only in Crosby, uh, he's he's in Withenshaw, so just a short train ride. They could have met up in Warrington maybe. Perfect. Yeah. You have got all this planned out, Si. I like your attention to detail. Thanks. There. Very good. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing escapes the gimlet eye of Galloway. Yeah, but the only one I would have written to, and uh, but you know she was ten years older, so she probably wouldn't have appreciated it. Eighteen-year-old girl loves Bauhaus, Roxy, Visage, and lots more. Passes the time reading, writing, and going to gigs. And that's Sue, who's in Northampton. She had to like uh, Bauhaus coming from Northampton, didn't she? Yeah, hometown heroes and all that. She sounds fun. Yeah, I'll have the sound of her. <laughs> So as we move through the pages, we come across the uh, centre spread for Simple Minds. Uh, very great. I mean, it's all in colour, but it's still very great. It would have been just virtually the same in black and white, really. There's not a lot of colour to it. The thing that really, when I was looking at this photo, I was like, there's something that's not right. What is it? What is it? And I realised it's Jim Kerr. If you look at his belt, if you wear a belt, you have the buckle in the centre, don't you? He's got his right over to one side, one, near one of his belt loops. Uh, off centre. I mean, that's just... Yeah. 
That's wrong, isn't it? It's probably all that kneeling down he does for the Glitter and Prize <laughs> video. It's probably shifted his belt around his body, I think. That's what's happened there. Yeah, I mean, Jim Kerr, you know, was famous for his for his crouch. And in fact, Roger Quayle mentions going to see Simple Minds in uh, one of his episodes of uh, My Life in the Mosh of Ghosts podcast. And I was, I was on public transport listening to this episode where he goes to see Simple Minds in Liverpool in 1981. And, and he calls Jim Kerr, one of Rock's great crouchers. And listen, I was on public transport. I just burst out laughing. Uh, pro- proper laugh out loud moment uh, from me. But yeah, Jim, I mean, he does that crouching. And I'd forgotten how odd he looked actually back then. There's a real otherness about him. And you see it in the Glittering Prize video as well. You know, the, the band, you know, and, and the band, you know, all good looking fellas. But then Jim just looks weird. In that kind of David Bowie mid nineteen seventies uh, sort of way, and I, I, I don't remember that from from the time. So it's, it's, it is odd seeing that. But I'm wondering because you know, Jim's only a wee slip of a fella at this point. So maybe he's had to punch extra holes in his belt, and then because he's got extra belt, then that he has to tuck into the loops further round. It would have been flapping around, so he's just had to swizz it round a little bit. I uh, got you. So, yeah. so it sits in sits in the, the his belt loops properly. I think that's what's going on there. Again, Mister Galloway, your attention to detail and your your eye for getting to the kernel of truth in any situation is impeccable. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, that was just mere practical, you know, uh, solution to the situation. You know, I, I would have been a snake belt wearer at this time, so I, I wouldn't have had those problems. Obviously, in your huggers cords. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to get me a pair of them, let me tell you, <laughs> along with my purple cowboy boots. Okay, we skip through a few more pages, and we come to the singles reviewed by Neil Tennant once more. Uh, he makes Rocker's Revenge, his single of the week, uh, Walking on Sunshine. He says, a song by reggae star Eddie Grant, given a very modern New York disco treatment without being torn from its reggae roots. It stands out from the crowd because of the depth and rhythmic density of the arrangement, which teases the melody with endless invention. He's all got quite poetic there, hasn't he, Neil? And leaving all that aside, it's a new dance classic. And I think very well deserved. It's a, it's a very good record. He, he likes Nobody's Fool by Haircut 100. Uh, what by Soft Cell gets a bit of a thumbs up as well. And The Raincoats uh, running away. Um, I'd say Neil's fairly restrained with songs he doesn't like. He doesn't sort of give too much of a kick into any. Uh, probably his most withering criticism is uh, reserved for Billy Idol, which uh, <laughs> I really enjoyed. Hot in the City is Billy's new single. And Neil just says, poor old Billy Idol. Those big eyes, those cheekbones, that blonde hair. If only he could sing and write a song, but he can't. He can't. It's that second he can't, which makes it for me that's perfect. So, yeah, I enjoyed that very much. It's so Neil Tennant, isn't it, really? He's got that yeah, very waspish and <laughs> Neil yeah. Tennant voice. But he hates the Go-Go's as well. Says a no-no from the Go-Go's. I suppose <laughs> they think this trashy sub-blondie power pop is somehow new wave. Dig out your spiky PVC punk booties and pogo all over it. <laughs> I thought that was rather harsh. It, yeah. It's a good tune, that. It's me too. I like it. <laughs> I was out walking the dog the other day and that came on just and it's got like a great kind of uh, drum solo at the beginning that kind of gathered up speed and it was the exact moment my dog started running and it was like <laughs> in my head it was a video for the song because she was like bombing along in this field to the uh, to the frenetic drumming of uh, the Go-Go's. It was perfect moment, you know, when music it kind of just uh, segues into life perfectly. Yeah, it was wonderful. 
But yeah, a little bit harsh there. He doesn't like um, Queen either, uh, their new single, Back Chat, which, having listened to it and watched the video, is like, yeah, I can see why I didn't like it. There's, it's a very weak single, isn't it? Well, I think all we have to say about that one, it's from the Hot Space album. And then yeah. we move on. <laughs> yes. I don't even remember it. <laughs> no, I don't remember it at all. There's many, many spanners in the video. Uh, I'm not quite sure what was going on. Maybe, maybe they borrowed them off Survivor. It says, uh, Neil says, the only trouble is Freddie Mercury's voice isn't really suited to this kind of music and no one can restrain Brian May from playing heavy metal guitar solos, which uh, I'd say is very accurate. I think my takeout from reading that was that Neil Tennant, is really showing his love for sort of dance floor disco mm. over guitars, basically. <laughs> he does like that, doesn't he? I mean, yeah. he, he does give a good, uh, for Haircut 100, you know, he, he likes that. He calls it a perky pop song with strong sixes influence and a neat set of chords, spoke with the, the CH, not not the other type that we've been talking about. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, the Raincoats one is a bit more guitar-y. But, yeah, generally he he talks a lot and you can, you can see that he's... Uh, kind of his natural it feels like where he feels really comfortable he's talking about dance music more isn't it and he, he talks about that with with a lot of authority but yeah he's he reviews them really well i always enjoy it when neil's on the singles i like seeing what he's got to say about things yeah the, the joe jackson review breaking us in two another mature ballad from the night and day lp expressing tender grown-up emotions with taste decorum piano and congas <laughs> so that's that's how you that's how you express those things with congas but i was going through through the playlist a couple of weeks ago and I actually nodded off whilst it was playing it, it'd been a been a hectic few days and i popped it on sat on the sofa and promptly nodded off <laughs> I'm, I'm of that age um but I, I woke up to this awful noise i couldn't figure out what was going on it's almost like it like i was stuck in a horror film or something like that uh, I realised that the playlist was still playing and it was um, a track from the UK Decay EP, Rising from the Dread, uh, the, the 10-minute sort of noise experiment that is Werewolf. It was terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't know what was going on. <laughs> Another tune on here that I'd never heard of before but I, I really enjoyed was uh, at the end of the first column, uh, a singer called Polar Henried called Tomorrow Has Been Cancelled, a dire warning of a grim future expressed in suitably cold electronics and theatrical singing. Could have come straight from the Breaking Glass soundtrack. I really like that. I don't know if either of you remember that one, but uh, that was that was a new a new discovery for me and very very much taken with it. Uh, unfortunately, there was uh, that was kind of all she did really. But yeah, there was nothing that, that kind of leapt out or, or lingered in the mind really. I quite enjoyed the Raincoats single that their version of Sly and the Family Stones running away. Mm. Uh, but I like that song anyway. And yeah, and a reminder that uh, Frida from ABBA made an album with Phil Collins. Oh, that <laughs> video as well is great. Yeah. It's so funny. Yeah, and, and as <laughs> uh, as Neil signs off on on this uh, review, stick with Bjorn and Benny Frida. <laughs> Sage advice. Sadly, uh, the end was in sight for ABBA. <laughs> we just didn't know it yet. <laughs> I just want to say about the video, so the song's called uh, I Know There's Something Going On, and she spends four minutes, she's got a private detective taking photos of her, her husband, a her partner, whatever, who seems to be having an affair with a young woman. And she keeps singing, I know there's something going on. She's got all these photos showing her there's clearly something going on. But never at any point does she go, yeah, there is something going on and confronts him. It's just just a mournch fest for four minutes. So, yeah. 
in the albums. Uh, nothing really scores very highly. There's there's not any big names uh, this time. Uh, Stephanie Mills is tantalisingly hot, gets 7 out of 10 from Ian Birch. He says, each song has a right balance of space, discipline and blood-burning excitement. If you want to be exceedingly trendy, slot it into a Walkman and listen while you're taking the air around the local park. It sounds wonderful. Uh, so, yeah, that's the top scorer, really. Um, Dave Rimmer gives 7 out of 10 as well to uh, Plunky and the Oneness of Juju, Every Way But Loose. But otherwise, they're fairly uh, fairly low score in Survivor. Uh, their Eye of the Tiger album has come out. Fred Deller gives it three. <laughs> and this is a great review. He says, yep, another American band off the 1979 production line and just as faceless as many others that have topped the US charts since the mid-70s. In fact, this hard-edged lot are so anonymous that even if you tripped over them, you'd probably still not give them a second look. <laughs> sure, they've struck lucky because Sylvester Stallone dim-wittedly used the album's title track as the main theme to Rocky Three. But what else would you expect from a guy who spends most of his screen career getting beaten around the head? <laughs> so, yeah, I rather enjoyed that one. Anything else that stuck out there? Yeah, well, Fred uh, gives the Trio album a rather low 2 out of 10. And it's, it's fantastic. It's it's such a bonkers album. But obviously Fred wasn't wasn't in the mood for a bit of trio in 1982. I like you say it's a fairly underwhelming selection of albums to be honest and and you know you've got the low scores to match really. Although Yukihiro Takahashi from uh, Yellow Magic Orchestra um he's got a solo album reviewed by Dave Rimmer and again just gets a low 4 out of 10 and I, I listened to the whole album that really enjoyed it and partial to a bit of um Yellow Magic Orchestra so Dave's clearly not. So if you had to, uh, either now or at the time, if someone had given you a record token and this was all they had in your local Woolworths, what would you have gone for here? I think I'd have gone for the Go-Go's at the time, actually. Dirty guitars and a nice Ramonesy feel. Yeah, they fare a bit better with Peter Silverton than they do with Neil Tennant. He gives them 6 out of 10, which is a more favourable review than in the singles. As I said, you know, Fred Della really didn't like Trio, but he does write a good review, does Fred. And he says, along with um, Actung, Actung, Sabine, 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 ya, ya, ya. My advice, dial 999. <laughs> That's a good line, isn't it? Yeah. He had to give it two out of ten just to get that line in, really, didn't he? <laughs> Talking of German, Sue, were you in uh, Mrs Cunningham's German class at Lightall? I was, yes. Oh, yeah. she was great, wasn't she, Mrs C? Loved Mrs C, Thelma. <laughs> I remember once she got us to do the lyrics. She was a big Paul McCartney fan, and she got us to do the lyrics of... We had to translate the lyrics of No More Lonely Nights by Paul McCartney into German. Yeah, I do remember. That's that. the only thing about any of the lessons, in uh, any of her lessons that stuck in my head. But like we all just thought, oh, God, that's so naff. You know, we were like, I mean, now I'd love to do that. That'd be like the best thing ever. <laughs> but yeah, at the time, it's like it's a bit embarrassing. Oh, Miss really likes Paul McCartney. I might be misremembering this, but um, I think it was uh, Miss Cunningham. She had a big massive poster of Brian Ferry in her classroom as well but it might have been one of the other language teachers well I think she was pretty cool wasn't she Mrs Cunningham yeah so yeah that I mean that would be that would probably be about right she was a big Paul McCartney fan so probably kind of Wings era and, and stuff so she could well have been into Roxy as well yeah I'm trying to think it was either her or Mrs Coulson yeah it could have been her <laughs> She was my old, uh, my form tutor. Anyway, we've gone down another rabbit hole now. We have now, yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm sure we could spend hours talking about old yeah. teachers. <laughs> what do you think this is? Friends Reunited. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> we'll set up our own RSVP <laughs> with uh, Alan Watkins talking about the old days in Sully Hill. Oh, moving on now to our cover stars, Duran Duran and, well, John Taylor, who's on the cover. I think in, in the kind of smash its pantheon of covers, and I don't use this word very often because it's overused, it's abused and, and, and misused quite a lot, but this cover with, with John in his wet T-shirt in a swimming pool is definitely iconic. Mm. That was just the word I was going to use. Yeah, yeah. It's a word I use lightly because it's so overused and misused, but I think that is the correct use of the word in this instance. Uh, I mean, who can resist John Taylor in a swimming pool? Anyway. uh, (laughs) Calm down, Si. Yeah, I'm going to join the Boys Town gang after this. Um, Yeah, so it's a a whopping three pages devoted to our cover stars. Ian Birch is with the band in California, and he's very much in the eye of the storm with the band in full promo mode. Or at least Simon, Nick and John are. Andy is preoccupied with his wedding, which is taking place the day after that I think uh, Ian is with them. And there's not really much mention of poor old Roger. Um, but the, the, the piece begins, Duran Duran stop over in California and find they have to get out and push with um, photos by uh, Sheila Rock on this one. It's midday in San Francisco and we're huddled together in a hired car, hurtling towards an interview at the video studios of a local TV station called California Music Channel. Simon Le Bon and Nick Rhodes are doing the honours on this occasion and they're still rubbing the sleep from their eyes. In the front seat, Simon bravely struggles with his breakfast, a polystyrene cup of tea and some toasted grape jelly sarnies, a regular early morning delight in America. In the back, Nick, with freshly laundered hair, of course, asks if anyone has a hairdryer. Everyone's forgotten theirs. Hairdryers are always a problem in hotels, he reflects with a mixture of openness and cheeky humour. Oh well, I don't mind. Going on TV with my hair wet at least shows I've washed it. So I think it's a, a, a really good piece. And I think it's um, easy to forget in the passing of time that they're only a couple of years into their career and, you know, and, and they've broken through in the UK. They've become part of you know, the pop establishment almost. But Rio's only the, the second album. So this is the, the big push in the USA. And the average day for them at this point is consisting of, you know, as it says here, zipping from a TV interview to a record signing in a shop to making a video, remixing a single, having a phone chat with a local radio station uh, and so on and so on. And, and so while Simon and Nick appear to be uh, having fun with it, you know, they're going and doing the interviews with the TV station and messing things up and just having a bit of fun uh, with it all. Uh, you get a real sense that, that John is, is very serious about it all. He's, He's analysing the situation and the, the job in hand, you know, and, and what they've got to do, what they're there to do. So, so in a way, it's it's more business chat, but they're from uh, coming at the other end of it as to where Stranglers and, and Sting are at. You know, they're, they're at the beginning of all this and, and they know that the job that's in front of them and they're, you know, like the wolf, they're hungry for it. <laughs> <laughs> they really are, aren't they? Yeah. Very ambitious. Yeah. I mean, it's worth saying that at this point... Um, it says in the article that Flock of Seagulls have been described as England's hottest new wave act. So Duran Duran are, you know, well below in the pecking order in terms of America, you know. Quite literally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a place anybody wants to be. No, definitely not. Particularly not a flock of them. No, no. definitely not. 
<laughs> I sort of picked up on the same as you, really, about how they were working on creating this huge Duran brand that, you know, had sort of come organically in the UK and they were having to work a lot harder in America. So it was, you know, it was quite a big focus on sort of the business aspect, wasn't there? And uh, all these PAs being an investment uh, in them. Also, I've I thought it was really interesting how they're talking about um, recruiting different producers and engineers to make them sound more palatable for America. And John Taylor, he seems to be sort of looking back on the stuff they were doing 12 months previously on their first album with embarrassments. And I thought, I wonder if he still does, you know, because last week they were churning out all those old hits, you know, (laughs) particularly the stuff from their... uh, first album and the fans love it so uh yeah it was just interesting about how you know we sort of live in a global community now don't we and in the 80s you you did literally have to go and take all your stuff over to america and present it on a very personal level really and you know, adapt what you were doing to American ears, which were so different to uh, us girls in Britain in Solihull. Hall. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think you're right that that bit about getting different producers in it really again shows their ambition and the fact mm. you know that what they're willing to do because a lot of bands, particularly kind of early on, they might be like we you know we don't want any messing with things. This is who we are, and but I think Duran has shown that they're very adaptable and and whatever they can do to become big. They're, they're willing to do it and you know they, they're working incredibly hard here aren't they like their their schedule must be mm. crazy but they're really putting the legwork in and and you know doing whatever's needed and yeah you're right that that bit about the embarrassment uh that, <laughs> that philly says i can't relate to the old duran duran i look at the planet earth video and the frilly shirts or the makeup which isn't that long ago and i think for crying out loud at first i didn't want anyone to be put off by the fact that i had deep cherry lip liner on now, if they don't buy our records because we haven't got frilly shirts on, I'm not interested. <laughs> so it's, again, like, kind of like Cy was saying before about the quick turnover of, you know, how quick the pop machine moved in those days. You know, mm. this is the stuff that in the UK, they're still famous on the back of those, those early singles. But for him, he wants to forget about it already and move on to the next thing. And it's sort of faintly embarrassed about the whole thing. Yeah, because the ne- next paragraph here, it says, um, the criticisms don't end here. A constant favourite is that having jettisoned the new romantic wardrobe, they're currently edging back to the kind of progressive rock that dominated the early 70s. This is like a red rag to a bull. So this is John Taylor speaking here. It's not like that. It's music played by young people with a positive and fresh approach who are giving value for money and who aren't flying plastic pigs above Bingley Hall. I'd just like some respect for what we do. We've never pretended to be anything other than what we are. 300 years ago, we'd have been court jesters. Today, we're just pop musicians. The new music, from us to the Human League, has the best of both worlds. The energy and youth of punk, and the subtleties and sophistication of good music, from Tchaikovsky to whoever. Tchaikovsky? (laughs) Yes, I listen to classical composers, a little Dvorak and Stravinsky. But I don't like talking about it because it sounds pretentious. (laughs) Yeah, talking about it. (laughs) You won't catch me talking about any of that. Yeah, but John John strikes me as really kind of thoughtful and analytical in in this one. He's really, you know, he's getting his head around 
like I said, getting his head around where they are, where they need to be, and and, and the job that's in hand. So he's he's really yeah, he's, he's really switched on in terms of all that sort of stuff. And also looking good in a wet t-shirt. That as well. <laughs> Brains and beauty. John Taylor, the complete package. And I'm not talking about his trunks there. <laughs> Something has changed in you, Sai, from it's this that, episode. It's, I... Yeah, it's, it's that photo of John Taylor on the front. You know, it's yeah. Just, yeah. I, well, I mean, the photo of Nick Rhodes uh, posing against the, the back of the car with his espadrilles on. Yeah. You know, it's, it's such a fantastic pose. You know, and the, it's but, great, isn't it? But you kind of get the feel. It's a similar T-shirt, I think, that he's wearing. Mm. You get the feeling that you know that, that this is just how they look every day. You know, yeah. You, whatever time of day or night, whenever you find us, we're always gonna, you know, we're going to be photo ready. Then they're always very, very sort of fifties uh, pinup glamour photos style, aren't they? You know, they are. But but what I like about Duran and, and and you know when we've encountered them before is that. Whilst they do take some aspects of it seriously, they can always poke fun at themselves. So I think they've got a healthy balance. Certainly at this point, you know, <laughs> before the uh, before the drugs kick in too much, they've got a healthy balance at this point of keeping it fun, but also knowing that they, that they've got to do some hard work and, and being self aware as well, and and not taking themselves too seriously. I think that does change a little bit as the 80s wear on and we get that um, power station Arcadia split a, a couple of years later. Yeah. But at this at this point, they're a lot of fun. Yeah, there's um, there's a video which we might be able to add to the playlist as well of that's kind of the interviews at the California Music Channel that has been referenced in this article and you get to see those actual interviews and they're just having a lot of fun, aren't they? And it's, you know, it's all quite, they, f- they feel quite excited and Simon in particular is very kind of giddy and, He's like a little puppy, like he's all like, ooh. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, and there's, and there's sort of a, a nice um, nice interplay between him and Nick. And talking about themselves not taking things too seriously, it says in the article, next stop after San Francisco is LA, where Nick is determined to buy a soft leather biker's cap without the chain. <laughs> his collection of headgear might be small, but it's certainly select. He still has his school balaclava and a Captain Scarlet hood with built-in visor and toy microphone, <laughs> which I would love to see. While no one's watching, Nick slopes off and secures the cap. It makes Mark Ullman look like John Wayne, John quips later. <laughs> <laughs> Talking of headgear as well, we get a very early appearance of, uh, well, I don't know how early it is, but there's a, a picture of Roger uh, in the bottom left-hand corner, and it says that he's in Bonce Bouncers, and I was saying, is that what? Because I always called them Deedy Boppers, but uh, I was I found like a little article about uh, about the name of them, and um, yeah, for for a long time I think in the UK they didn't really have a name in particular, so people often called them Bonce Bouncers or Bounce Bouncers or Deedy Bodders as well, I think, or something. Yeah, there's like five or six different names, so that blew my tiny little mind, as you can imagine. <laughs> yeah, so Bonce Bouncers. As I'm going to refer to them from now on. Yeah, I think that's that's probably the only mention of Roger in the piece, really. <laughs> yeah, he gets uh, he gets very little. I th- yeah, I think you're right. I think that is it. That's the lot of the drummer. Yeah, because Andy gets a little piece uh, because he's you know he's talking about his wedding and following on from Nick's search for for this hat. It says here, there's a much more crucial clothes. Yeah, whistling teeth. There's a much more crucial clothes hunt in in the offing. Andy is marrying Tracy Wilson the next day and he wants everything to be perfect, especially as the band's hectic schedule has forced them to postpone the big day again and again. The dean from a nearby university has agreed to perform the service and the location is dazzling. 
It's the extraordinary hotel called the Chateau Marmont, which looks like a mixture of an English stately home and the German castle and the TV Heineken advert. Its gardens positively grown with lush vegetation, while the swimming pool is criminally alluring. Andy insists that everyone wears the full wedding kit, top hat, wingtip collar, cravat, pearl-topped tie pin, waistcoat and pinstripe trues. Before the next round of interviews with a Japanese magazine, a Canadian radio station and a local equivalent of Nationwide called Ion LA, in which Simon announced that the band found their name in a cornflakes packet, the group sneak off for fittings. Tracy, however, won't let on what she's wearing until the day itself. Mommy's disappointed not to be here, while Dad, adds Tracy, is probably relieved not to be here. She's flown in from Wolverhampton, where she's left the family to look after their hairdressing business, called, not surprisingly, Wilson, Wilson and Wilson. And there's a lovely wedding photo there as uh, part of the piece as well. So yeah, pop music intruding on their, their personal lives and wedding plans and the parents not being able to fly out for the wedding. And they're still married. Just looked up 40 years later. That's nice, isn't it? And Duran Duran is still going 40 years later. My dad said they'd never last. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of your your liking of, of Duran Duran, I mean, how far did it go? Did you get all, all the albums, the singles that were out at the time? I did. I had Rio first and then I sort of went back and um, got their first album after that. Went to see them at Villa Park when they played. That was my first ever concert. So I think that was 1983, so the year after this. Did all the, you know, queuing up for tickets for all their gigs when they were playing at the NEC. And then sort of totally fell out of love with them after Wild Boys. (laughs) (laughs) But that sort of Rio era was my era. But I have been to see them a couple of times in more recent years. And, uh, yeah, it's good fun. Even my husband quite liked it, I think. So (laughs) he can appreciate a good bass player, probably in different ways to I do. (laughs) Okay, we'll leave Duran Duran in California and uh, move on. Have a quick scan at the letters page. Um, There's a few of interest here, I'd say. Um, I particularly like the one, uh, the penultimate letter on the first page, all about Kim Wilde and her hair routine, which (laughs) which we really need to get into. Um, It's from Another Kim, Brighton. It says, Dear Worried Kim Wilde Fan, issue from July 22nd. No wonder you're worried. You don't know anything about the girl. Number one, Kim does not bleach her hair, she lightens it. Number two, she first lightened it when she was 17, not when she decided to be a pop star. Three, she uses a perfectly harmless setting gel to make her hair stand up. There we go, can't argue with any of that. Can <laughs> Someone who's taking Kim Wilde's hair routine very, very seriously there. And, and I thought in the interest of balance, we, you know, we, we read Neil Tennant's uh, review of Billy Idol earlier and he got a bit of a kicking in that. So this is a nice positive thing about Billy Idol. Uh, from Rob Hudson, a Stiff Little Fingers fan in Southampton. He says, Dear Mr Bostock, I'd like to pick you up on something you had to say about Billy Idol in your review of his solo album from uh, July the 22nd. You said, This get-rich-quick policy is written all over his debut album, implying he's some kind of ignorant pig who doesn't care about anything but money. However, when I was in New York on holiday a couple of weeks ago and about to board one of the famous graffiti-ridden trains, guess who comes walking along the platform? None other than Mr Idol himself. So, naturally, I went up and asked for his autograph, but instead of signing the little square of paper I was holding, he took out a 12-inch version of White Wedding, hot off the press from a paper bag, signed the cover and handed it back to me. 
He was very pleasant. Nothing like the mean, ignorant image people label him with. <laughs> so, Mr Bostock, go and meet Billy Idol before you make any further comments about him and see for yourself what he's like. But I thought that was nice that Billy did that. That's a lovely gesture, wasn't it? So good on you, Sir Billiam of Idol, I say. Anything that either of you two uh, found in the letters page that uh, pricked your interest? I picked up on Lillian from Cheshire, who was bemoaning cover versions. But um, I thought, how many of these letters are actually spoofs that that the editors have written themselves? Because it just didn't quite ring true. (laughs) So you think it's that the writers themselves, you know, where where they've got an axe to grind and using this as an outlet? Yeah. 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 At the end of the first letter, I mean, I'm not going to read the first letter out because it's quite long, but it's signed off. Mackenzie's right eye, Walthamstow. It's talking about uh, Billy McKenzie. Um, and uh, editor has, has commented here, don't any of you people have names anymore? <laughs> uh, the following letter, wow, you guys have received some letters from some wacky people in the past. How about Mark Harmon's studded wristband or Terry Lee Miles' right drumstick or Martin Kemp's loincloth, David Sylvian's braces or Simon Le Bon's big toenail? Mind you, that one in the last issue of Smashes was too much. Haircut fan Cranley. That really takes the biscuit. Cynical Chipping Sodbury. <laughs> There's quite a few like, why, oh, why sort of letters that are moaning about things. Uh, you know, we have to suffer this complete rubbish at the top of the charts and um, why isn't Smash It psychedelic? <laughs> things why like isn't that. it punk? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Someone is desperate for a, a picture of uh, Watty from The Exploited. So uh, they they put a little picture in on the letters page. Uh, <laughs> probably best is not on the cover. Yeah, to be fair, I think yeah. so. <laughs> so that's yeah, just a quick scan of the uh, letters page. There, so, yeah, no, not really much. Just people grinding axes, and are they real people after all? Uh, we move on to well, it's coming in the next issue. ABC Gary Newman and Captain Sensible. That's on sale. On September the 2nd, um, an advert for the Japan compilation album Assemblage. I bought a copy of that, not in 1982, but a couple of years later. And uh, below that, fame, high-quality American T-shirts and sweatshirts. And next to that, Virgin Books, all is revealed. Ooh, what's this mystery here? Tell us, Gav. Well, I went on eBay and bought myself a copy because it looks so amazing. Virgin Books, uh, 40 leading rock stars confess, share their most intimate secrets revealed in their own handwriting. And yeah, it is... It is on their own handwriting. Uh, I wouldn't say they reveal an awful lot, to be fair. <laughs> Most of the answers are just made up or, or kind of daft. And it's basically the idea is it's a standard questionnaire, the kind of thing you get in personal file in, in bits, name, date of birth, favourite food, favourite performers, what you read, what you get up to kind of thing. Tell us a secret, but obviously no one ever does. Yeah, yeah. The book's called Rock Secrets. What they're playing it? <laughs> well, yeah, but you know, or they, or they just make make up something silly. Um, but the the thing is, it's in their handwriting, so I, I, that's really the uh, unique selling point uh, for this slim volume. I mean, it was one ninety five when it came out. I got it on eBay for like I think one ninety nine, including packaging. So it's not really held its value. Uh, but yeah, it's 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 more of a it's more of a pamphlet. Really, could have come out as a fanzine. <laughs> Anyway, as I'd bought it, I thought I might as well quickly use it in this. So I'm going to give you six names of rock stars because one of the questions in the on the questionnaire is favourite reading matter. And two of these six said that Smash Hits was in amongst their favourite things to read. So these are a list of names and you've got to pick out which two you think 
would have said smash its okay so your choices are lemmy off of motorhead as opposed to any other lemmys <laughs> adamant off of adam and the ants paul weller uh from the jam of course toya uh annabella lewin from uh bow wow wow or marie wilson so play along at home <laughs> lemmy adamant paul weller toya annabella or marie wilson which two of those said smash its Ooh. who's gonna go first i don't know what, what, what are you thinking sue i'm gonna go with adam i think okay um and who's your second choice uh i'll go for annabelle lewin okay adam and annabelle's sigh yeah I'll, I'll give you the scores on the doors after i've had both of your choices yeah so lemmy i think unlikely but then that's what makes him likely um adamant kind of yeah i mean they're all possibles aren't they adamant yes but also knowing at this time you know when we encountered him in 1982 previously he was in a bit of a bad state uh and you know mentally uh and may not have wanted to know too much about what was going on in the pop world may have been too trivial for him paul weller probably not um toya <laughs> maybe annabelle lewin yeah, I think she's likely. You know, she was quite young, so you know, could still be within the pop kid bracket. Mary Wilson, far too sophisticated and a woman of the world to be bothering herself with such trivialities of of, of smash hits. But she was also, you know, a fun time gal. So maybe you know, she she would have liked a bit of smash hits. So, yeah, I'm going to go for Lemmy and Annabella. Okay, so size Lemmy and Annabella. And Sue, you were Annabella and Adamant. Adamant. Okay. Well, you both got one right. And it's the same one, Annabella. <laughs> okay. You were right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She says she likes reading mad comics and smash hits. Uh, Adamant, his favourite uh, things to read are biographies and short stories. Lemmy says his favourite thing to read are books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unsurprisingly. Uh, neither of you went for Toya, which was very correct because that was wrong she likes kerouac and tolkien uh the other one was paul weller he says he likes reading uh, most george orwell and smash hits and marie wilson who you both avoided women's own and biographies yeah that sounds about right yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so well done not too far <laughs> a family circle yeah. Yeah. and obviously you be bloody 40 turn up in this as well of course they do of course ali campbell just has got a bit of a running uh, sorry, it's not uh, Ali, it's Robin Campbell has got a bit of a running theme about hamsters and doing silly things to hamsters, which uh, it kind of loses its uh, humour very quickly and goes all the way through it, so we won't dwell on that. But, yeah. Is that relate, go, relating to the hamster pouch that you mentioned earlier? I could do, actually, yeah. <laughs> Let's leave it there. I don't want to eh? think too much about the logistics <laughs> of how that might work, so I'll, yeah, I'll park that one. Yeah. But there we go. Easily, easily to find on eBay, any, or if anyone wants it, get in touch and I'll send it to you. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Happy to share. Uh, yeah. Well, with that and uh, a poster of Donna Summer on, on, on the back, peering from behind a door, I think that just about brings this issue of Smash It's to a close. So, uh, so what, what's it been like? You know, not only going back to 1982 with this issue of Smash It's, but going back to 1982 with this issue of Smash It's with your old classmate, Gavin. It's been a journey. <laughs> Emotional. Um, Emotional, man. <laughs> no, it's been really good fun looking at the person that 
I used to be, which probably don't do that often, to be honest. And uh, yeah, looking back at um, songs that I'd forgotten and artists that I'd forgotten and just, you know, having that 40 plus years perspective on it has been really fun and interesting. And um, yeah, nice to catch up with Gaff. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> it's been nice having you along for the ride. And uh, if nothing else, I think, was it, through doing this podcast that your son has got into uh, the Eye of the Tiger video. Is that the reason he was watching it? Or was he watching no, it before that? he's a bit of a weirdo, to be honest. <laughs> You're allowed to say that. We couldn't possibly say that. All, all the best kids are. <laughs> no, he's, he's, um, he's mad on uh, watching YouTube videos. Uh, and, okay, uh, so he discovered it for himself. Uh, yeah, he just, he just goes down the rabbit hole of 80s pop and right. uh yeah comes up with all sorts of fun things <laughs> i was gonna say if nothing else we've uh you know we've brought this into his life but it, he's he discovered it for himself that's fantastic it, he yeah it, it was there already <laughs> <laughs> but no it's been it's been lovely going going back and you know this this era for me is uh this is my real kind of happy happy little place and uh i, I feel very comfortable with the, the music of, of this time and uh, yeah, a few kind of new tunes that I'd kind of forgotten about, and uh, and stuff I didn't know that that Polar Henry that I really liked, um, the Boys Town Gang video. Nothing will ever take that away from me now. Thanks for that. Can't take, literally can't take my eyes off it. <laughs> yeah, definitely couldn't. And uh, yeah, I'll never look at the Eye of the Tiger video uh, again in the same way since uh, since my wife alerted me to the uh, the hamster pouches. So you know, I, I, there's many things that I'll remember from this episode. <laughs> It is funny, but sometimes you know we'll we'll get an issue of the mag, and I kind of I don't get very much from it. I'm not getting a sense of the time and stuff. But this one, I don't know. I was really able to to pinpoint things that I were doing within this specific period or, or just mm. after, um, and so it really does come back quite clearly at, at times. And this this is one of those times where I was you know really able to just picture things, picture what life was like at that time for me and, and the things that I was doing. So, yeah, it's, it's mm. yeah, and like I say, a pop happy place. I think for me as well, because, you know, 12, 13, it's that sort of um, middling period, isn't it? Be sort of between being a kid and being a, well, what you think is a grown-up, <laughs> building your own version of what a grown-up is like. Mm. So, um, yeah, very intense memories of that time for me. And thank you for sharing that story about going around John Taylor's. That was that was great. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh glad to, yeah. I've got a Lemmy story as well, actually. Oh go on. It, it was probably about the same time. There was um this Radio One event at Solihull Civic Hall. So well, you know, well old. And Lemmy was there and Depeche Mode were there. And I wanted my photo taken with Depeche Mode. <laughs> so Lemmy <laughs> Took a photo, took a photo of me with Depeche Mode. Oh my god! And um, <laughs> and I didn't have one, I didn't have one taken with Lemmy, and I so regret it. <laughs> Do you still have the, the Depeche Mode photo? I I will have somewhere. It's probably in my dad's loft. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. So, Fantastic. Yeah, I would have loved a picture with Lemmy, but anyway, <laughs> got one with Dave gone. I think I went to that same thing. Was it a pop quiz? Thing. Yeah, it was. I yeah. went because I got. I remember waiting outside and uh, I saw Captain Sensible. Yeah, 
and I got his autograph. He was the only one that I saw when I, I was standing outside for a few hours. But uh, <laughs> and I, I remember getting really upset because I saw him, and I was and I was a bit shy, you know, like you two mm. at that kind of age. We talk about your shyness at that age, and I wanted to, to go up and and ask him. And then this flock of like. Uh, girls of the same kind of age all came, Captain, Captain, and they were like very forthright. <laughs> and I was like, I was on the verge of tears because I was like, I wanted to get Captain because I just knew him off the telly. I didn't know he was in the damned or anything mm. like that, you know. Um, so he signed all these autographs and then I kind of, I think I shuffled like just behind these girls and then he saw me and he was really lovely and he was like, all right, mate, do you want an autograph as well? I was like, yes, please, thank you. <laughs> and he was very, yeah, he was very kind to me. He was very nice. And uh, yeah, I always remembered that. I've always thought of him very fondly because of that. The kindness he showed a, a shy young yeah. uh, brummy lad, yeah. <laughs> well, I always loved Lemmy after that as well because he was really just lovely and kind to us, and he w- wasn't starry at all. <laughs> oh, that's good. Well, yeah, we just we've seen in this episode we we know good stuff about Lemmy. We know Sir Billiam of Idle. Mm. He's a good fella. You know, sometimes these rock and rollers, they look a bit mean and that, but, you know, deep down. Yeah, these rock and rollers and their mums. Let's not forget John Taylor's mum. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. God bless you, Mrs. T. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, thanks, Sue. And, uh, well, thanks to you for listening as well. Don't forget to check out our website, giddypoppod.home.blog, where you'll find the links to the issue of Smash Hits that we've been looking at, along with those Spotify and YouTube playlists so you can enjoy your ride on the carousel to its fullest. And, of course, you can check out our previous episodes, playlists and scans, our back issues, if you will, while you're there. And if you want to support us by buying us a coffee, then you know what to do. Go to ko-fi.com slash giddypoppod. Uh, and if you feel moved enough to leave us a review, then uh, you can do that as well on your podcast app of choice. And come and say hello to us whenever you feel like it, at Giddy Pop Pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And we'll say hello back when we see the notification. We will indeed. So thank you once again for listening. And we'll see you next time on the Giddy Carousel of Pop. Bye! Bye! <laughs> Bye! Ta-da! Bye.